Welcome to the Future of Life Institute podcast. My name is Gus Docker and I'm here with Joe Carl Smith. Joe, do you want to tell our listeners about yourself? Sure. So uh, I work as a senior research analyst at Open Philanthropy, which is a foundation that makes grants in a bunch of different uh, areas. But in particular, I uh, focus on existential risks from artificial intelligence. And then I also write about philosophy and futurism and other things. And you also hold a PhD in philosophy from Oxford University, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's right. I think that's worth mentioning for us. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> And yeah, for listeners who haven't read your blog, I highly recommend it. It's uh, calling it a blog is almost an understatement. It is uh, it is very in depth uh, essays on a variety of topics that where the essays actually make intellectual progress um, and and get you kind of further in your understanding. So yeah, highly recommend it. Well, thanks thanks for the kind words. Okay, great. So so your latest uh, one of these essays is about how we predictably update towards kind of higher belief in AI risk or taking AI risk more seriously. So what, what does it mean, this, this concept of predictably updating? I'll, I'll caveat, I don't, think, I don't think we sort of necessarily do this, but I think it's a pattern that we see. And, and in particular, the pattern, you know, I notice in myself, and I think I've, I've seen it around the world a little bit, is, you know, a new kind of frontier AI system comes out and is, is available. Um, and People play with it and they're very impressed. And as a result, they're worry about AI risk. Um, and in particular, I, I'm, I'm interested here in kind of existential risk from AI and from misaligned AI. So kind of AI systems that are very powerful and which are also in some sense agentic, getting out of control, pursuing goals that are in conflict with human interests um, and kind of destroying humanity's control over our own destiny um, in the process. And so if you were surprised by the level of progress that's been made in AI, then I think this isn't actually a sort of problematic pattern to kind of get more worried as uh, as you see the systems kind of progress, if, if, the, if the progress is surprising. But if the progress wasn't surprising, if it was sort of the progress that you expected, then I think there's a kind of interesting dynamic in which you, you at least on a kind of basic Bayesian conception of how, how you're thinking about belief, you shouldn't end up um, changing your, your worry level dramatically as a result of seeing evidence that you, in some sense, predicted that you would see. And, and the basic reason for that is that um, if you were able to predict that you were going to see that evidence later, then that allows you, at least with that kind of, to the degree that you predict to predict that it'll happen, it allows you to kind of take it into account ahead of time. And so in some sense, you should have, uh, you should have factored in whatever you would think in the future into what you think uh, in the present. And, and, that, and, and so I think this is an interesting dynamic, and I think it occurs for a variety of reasons. In particular, I'm interested in kind of the difference between seeing something up close and far away and sort of processing something at an intellectual level versus at a visceral level, which I think is sort of doing a lot of the work when you actually play with these systems. And I'm, I'm sort of hoping that we can avoid this in future. I think we're sort of in a position to predict right now that these systems are going to get kind of a lot better, and we are going to see it in the future. And I think um, so we should kind of strive to be unsurprised uh, and also strive to kind of incorporate whatever level of worry we'll have in the future into our level of worry now. Yeah, so this kind of goal of striving to be unsurprised is perhaps a part of, of Bayesian thinking. So is what you're talking about here, is this just an instance in which we as humans diverge from the optimal Bayesian way of updating our beliefs? Because then it would be unsurprising in a sense that, that we're doing this. We do this in, in all kinds of areas. So is there anything special about the way we update our beliefs about AI risk? I think, yeah, I think there are a variety of ways in which humans diverge from ideal Bayesianism. And, and in fact, so many that I think we should be cautious in 
assuming too quickly, we know the right way to apply uh, sort of abstract Bayesian norms to our lived actual kind of messy human epistemic life. I do think that this is a specific sort of failure mode, but but it's one that I, th I see as actually relatively kind of common to our epistemic relationship to kind of very different future states, sort of future states that we have not in some sense encountered or seen as kind of normal or processed with, that, that we're mostly processing with a sort of limited part of our our mind and, and in particular sort of abstract modeling. And so, it, you know, it can be the case that you can be abstract, you're abstractly modeling something in a, in a manner that is in some sense correct, but nevertheless, it hasn't kind of oomphed into your whole system. You don't have, your gut doesn't kind of believe it. There's some basic way in which it's it's being treated as sort of like a game. It's it's a sort of discourse or a conversation. There are kind of concepts that you're able to move around, but there's a whole other aspect of your epistemic life that hasn't been engaged by it. Um, and I think that's something that often happens with uh, kind of things that are distant, things that are very different, things that are um, weird, and a bunch of other things. Um, and so I think AI AI kind of hits on hits on a lot of that. Perhaps like some of some philosophical ideas like utilitarianism or infinity that, that you also talk about, those ideas might fall in the same category as AI, as basically difficult for us to process. So when we when we have this worry, how, how has this played out for you? Is this an uh, this pattern of predictable updating? Has this happened for you on, on, on AI risk? So I think it has has in various ways. Um, I've become, you know, so I've become more worried about uh, existential risk from AI. But it's not just that that particular level where I think I've noticed a bunch of ways in which I'm kind of inhabiting now, you know, this these past six months, maybe in particular, as we've seen these sort of these new systems coming out and a bunch of new stuff happening. I feel like I'm inhabiting a world that, you know, five years ago, I, you know, I first heard about AI risk in actually, I guess, 2013. And so I was, um, you know, I've been thinking about this stuff for a while. And then even, even um, in the past kind of, uh, the more recent history, I've been following relatively closely uh, progress in um, in AI and in deep learning, and and following what's happening with large language models and and kind of scaling laws and stuff like that. So you know, at an abstract level, I think I was in a position to predict that you know we were gonna we were gonna be in a situation pretty much it's sort of like this. In fact, there's a lot of kind of parts of my abstract model of the AI world that I feel like are kind of just becoming concrete. So you know, an, an example, um, you know. It's sort of, I remember making with a friend, this uh, colleague, a sort of model of, of AI timelines. And we used this concept of wake up, which was this sort of period where the world sort of suddenly starts to go like, oh my God, AI, and really and really kind of see what's happening. And this was something we, we were sort of expecting to happen. You know, we had a little model. And I sort of think that if back then we had been able to look look ahead to kind of chat GPT and kind of what the world's reaction to it in the uh, since it came out, I think we would um, we'd sort of be like, oh yeah, that, that's what we're talking about. You know, there's a, so there's a weird sense, but you know, when you make these models, you're sort of like, ah, it's this janky model. It's like, is this even, you know, tracking anything? And then, you know, a thing happens, you're like, oh, whoa, you know, it's sort of really, it, it, now obviously, you know, it could be there's bigger wake-ups in the future. So who knows if this is like the perfect candidate. So that was one, that's one example of sort of something that was abstract and that in some sense was guiding my behavior was kind of becoming concrete. So when you're making the abstract model of AI progress, this is your best attempt. This is where you're you're at uh, your best intellectually. And you're, you're using the most evidence, you're, you're, you're thinking in the, in the deepest possible ways. And when then uh, sometimes later when you're using ChatGPT, you're, you're kind of emotionally surprised at how good it is. You're seeing debates uh, in, in, in the governments, you're seeing front pages on on magazines and so on and then 
the 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 world waking up is as you expected it to be but in a sense the emotional response to the to the thing actually happening shouldn't <laughs> that's not where you're doing your best thinking so so you you should kind of have you should have trusted yourself more in a sense or at least trust trusted your intellectual f- uh, faculties more it's something like that there there's a there is a way in which this has been an update for me towards if you have a sort of argument or model that appears that like makes sense and you don't really see kind of major problems with it at an intellectual level but it sort of somehow feels a bit unreal you shouldn't trust too much that feeling of unreality and this has sort of been a shift for me i think in the past i was very interested in the signal that kind of my gut my gut's kind of degree of reality was sending me about uh, the kind of epistemic status of various ideas and um you know and concepts and stuff like that partly because i think you know it can be it can be really hard to kind of track all this stuff and also you know i think if your gut buys something that is a real plus in the sense that um your gut is has its own kind of connections with a bunch of the evidence that you're you're bringing in in fact i think often like you know the intellectual part of our lives is is kind of centrally overlapping with uh, kind of tribal and and kind of other forms of social processing that don't actually like I think I think you know it may be that that kind of at a psychological level that apparatus is not kind of our most kind of world oriented it's it's a little more like what is my identity what is my kind of affiliation who am I signaling kind of alliances with or whatever and then there's like a different part where your body goes like okay wait that but that's the real thing that's like the tiger that's like the boulder that's going to kill me that's like am I going to eat um and so I think there's actually a sort of a kind of prior expectation you could have, which is that sort of your gut is really the the thing that, you know, evolution has sort of made for tracking the like real tigers. Um, and so if, if your gut doesn't believe in something, you might not, um, you know, that that might be because you're just kind of faffing around with with your tribe. So, that, you know, that was a that was a sort of idea I'd been very interested in. But finding out finding that, you know, that my sort of abstract models, which my gut had been kind of, I think, more skeptical of starting to track the world, starting to really just kind of instantiate them. And then my gut going like, oh, whoa, it's actually real, has made me go like, gut, like we could have got that before, you know, <laughs> or something like that. And so, so, um, and I'm, so I have, I have sort of shifted a little bit in how much I, I kind of trust, trust the kind of reality feeling for, for various kind of futurism flavored forms of forecasting. So per- perhaps one skeptical point here is just to talk about the difference between um, AI being capable and, and AI being dangerous. So if, and when we sit down and use a chatbot, for example, and we are, are impressed by it, or we, we, see, we see AI progress and we feel it in our guts, why would that lead us to believe that, that AI risk is higher, that AI is more dangerous? Wouldn't we have to see some concrete evidence of dangerousness before we believe that? In and of themselves, increases in capability, you know, they don't, they're not a necessary signal of, of danger. I do think, you know, other things equal they are in the sense that more capability is more capability to do dangerous things. Um, and, and also, you know, I, I think the, yeah, the scary thing about AIs is just how capable they will be such that they'll be so capable that if they were aiming at something we didn't want them to aim at, or in, in some sense operating in a way that we didn't want and that was contrary to our interests, we might not be able to stop them if, if they were kind of suitably self-protective and, and kind of power-seeking and stuff like that. So I, I think that I think the capability is really crucially connected with the concern. Now, it's it's in principle possible that as you see evidence of kind of AIs being capable, you are also seeing evidence for tons of progress in safety and understanding and interpretability and, oh, we really can control these systems and, and we, we really understand how it's going. And maybe you're seeing 
arguments, you know, the, the sort of old arguments for concern being kind of dismantled by the, the, the kind of humanities uh, kind of epistemic apparatus. If you were seeing all that at the same time, then I think then I think it's, it's um, you know, you can end up comforted on net. I don't think that's what we're seeing anyway. Yeah, but we might be seeing the release of more and more capable models without disaster, without accidents. I'm not saying this is the case, but I'm saying this could be the case. And so, if we if, if that was a pattern that we would that we were seeing repeatedly, then perhaps we we, we would begin thinking about whether capabilities can can increase without dangerousness uh, increasing or risk increasing. Also, I'm not making that update in the in that the story was never that these models would destroy the world. It was always that there's a sort of threshold level where... We, now, I think there is a, a period before that where you, you you might expect and hope to start to see kind of warning signs. And depending on how fast things are going and how abrupt different transitions are, you know, you get that luxury to greater and lesser degrees. I, in fact, I think in general, people are sort of too... There's a kind of weird level of anchoring in people's kind of assessment of the risk to the present. And that's part of what I'm trying to push back on in the post is it's really not it's really not about like can the system is there still some stuff that the systems can't do or are the super are the systems super intelligent right now or are they trying to kill you right now it's about where are we going like what what is you know it's sort of you don't want to just look at the present you want to be looking to the possible futures and kind of wondering wondering what's going to happen next and, and updating accordingly yeah i don't i don't think like whether the the systems have have sort of been dangerous so far is all that much of a signal now that said I do also think we're getting some amount of disturbing evidence about basic features of the alignment discourse seeming to hold. So, you know, I think, for example, there was this brief, I think, kind of quite striking period where when, you know, Microsoft deployed this chatbot Bing um, and, and deployed it kind of prematurely, partly perhaps out of out of a desire to kind of get an upper hand in, in a kind of in, in some sort of competitive dynamic that itself is worrying premature deployment because you're kind of competing with someone else is, is another thing that was sort of, you know, in the abstract model, like don't, do, you know, and now here they're sort of coming out. Microsoft is like the race begins today. It's like, no, no, no. It, but then, you know, so what happens, you you have this, this chatbot now, I, and it was doing just, it, it might be just crazy stuff, right? It was like blackmailing people. It was threatening people. It was like reading people's tweets and being like, how could you say that about me? It was, it was like, trying to propose to the to a New York Times reporter. I don't know, there's a whole thing. Um, it was just being very weird. It would like repeat itself, all sorts of stuff. It would, you know, And so I, I don't actually think the like blackmail and the lying was um, of the specific type that the misalignment discourse is concerned about. I don't think it was like Bing was like pursuing a, a goal and like lying with that end. I think it was more of a play acting thing. But I think the thing we nevertheless saw was that these are sort of alien minds like you know i think i think this this thing was rampaging around the internet and i felt like the whole world was looking at going like what is this thing um and and i think you know the, the basic lesson I, I i think is pretty important here which is that you know kind of by default when you just churn through a bunch of gradient descent you get this kind of crazy creature that we don't understand um and then you know maybe you sort of shape it according to rlhf and there's a question of how far that goes and in what context but like the sort of default thing you get appeared in that context to be this like crazy but quite capable kind of alien mind and um so i you know i don't think we're getting zero signs of of kind of danger as well even as in addition to just kind of pure capabilities increase yeah true true yeah how how do we then update in the correct way do we simply trust our abstract models more do we trust our intellectual view of the world more or what is the what is the right way to do it and perhaps here we could talk about this this um concept of just updating all the way 
So <laughs> where where this is this is something that that people sometimes will encourage uh, me to do, for example, just update all the way towards having a, a, a view of, of AI progress being very fast and AI risk being very high. How, how do we do this in the correct way? So I don't think there's any kind of royal road. Um, you know, epistemology in general always has, there's sort of always different, in, I don't know, in everything, there's always different ways to fail on different sides of the horse. And, and you know, it sort of depends on the person and the context and, and what they're doing. But, I mean, the main thing that I want to push is that if you are currently at very low odds on AI risk overall, then I think I, I want to urge attention to your predictions about how you will feel in the future, um, conditional on various forms of AI progress. And I actually think this these sorts of updates don't even need to be kind of predictable in the sense of more likely than not. I think if you're if you're at a sufficiently low probability on AI risk, then they're actually just like quite binding and kind of hard Bayesian constraints on what can happen to your credences later. So you can, uh, you know, specifically your, uh, it can never be more than one over X probable that your, your credence will increase by a factor of X. So if you're, if you're at 1%, it, it can't be more than one in 10 that your, your credence ever goes to 10%. So if you're at like one in a million, then it can't be, uh, you know, more than one in a thousand that you're ever at one in a thousand. Right. And so, so this doesn't even need to be predictable. It's sort of like, you could, you could just think like, you know, when you see GPT seven or something and, it, you know, and you're wondering, well, you know, suppose GPT seven can like uh, solve millennium prize problems or something. Uh, so like really advanced mathematics and you, you're, you're a skeptical, you can, you can be skeptical. You don't even think, need to think, oh, like these models are going to be great in the future, but okay. Is it, how probable is it? Are you ready to bet at like one in 10,000 one, you know, if it's one in a thousand and that would get you to 1%, then like, you know, so you, you're you're already getting sort of constraints in terms of what you should be believing now, at least at least on a sort of basic Bayesian um, framework. And so, you know, the, the thing I most want to urge is sort of just like attention to these dynamics, attention to the ways in which what you expect in the, to believe in the future should um, kind of be constraining what you believe now. And then there's a sort of additional thing about why it might be the case that you aren't doing that, which I think often has to do with this sort of visceralness versus um, kind of abstract abstract thing. And I don't have like a great way to, to, to kind of um, overcome that except to think, yeah, to really, I, I think like basically you should, you know, really try to imagine, okay, this thing really happens. I really see, I really see the, you know, for me, it's sort of a, a big part of this is, you know, when I really imagine a super intelligent machine, a machine that is like, I'm, I'm looking in the eye and that it is just sort of dominant uh, over like all of the like smartest humans over groups of humans in like science and strategy. It's like thinking, you know, extremely fast. It's sort of, it, I think there's like a basic way in which I expect, like when I actually look that machine in the eye, I'm going to be scared. I'm going to be like, whoa, this, this thing is, is a kind of formidable and serious, uh, kind of, uh, force in the world, what is it going to do? What if it did something else? Like what? And and so like just kind of really trying to make that concrete ahead of time, so that when you actually show up and you're kind of you feel it in your bones, you had managed to kind of propagate that information back into the past when you would have wanted to kind of act on it. Do you actually sit down and and do this visualization exercise and try to think about what you would feel, or is this is this yeah is this something you actually do? Um, I think I do it in kind of various informal ways. I mean. I also think there are just like other other kind of practices. In some sense, this is just the whole game of like, how do you do good epistemology and forecasting? But I, I have tried to kind of get 
intentionally concrete and maybe in some sense unrealistically concrete in order to have sort of my gut or my kind of visceral epistemology start participating more directly. So I think sometimes, for example, people are hesitant to describe a concrete future with AI because it's true that sort of the more specific you go, the less likely and sort of, so any like sufficiently concrete future you describe will, will be sort of very unlikely to be the specific one. Um, but never, and so, so people can kind of be hesitant about writing down kind of vignettes or kind of trying to, trying to work out the details. But I actually think there are benefits to doing that regardless because it sort of can bring a more real world kind of sense of there are real observations that could occur. You could be really seeing this or this or this. Um, and, and I guess another version of that is you can kind of reflect on, you know, what is my current state like relative to the past? Um, like I, I opened the essay with this quote, uh, you know, this, this present moment is, is, was once the unimaginable future. And I think, you know, I really remember I, I, there was such a feeling of like unreality to me back, you know, even I guess 10 years ago when I first, first started getting into this about the idea of AI kind of period, like really good AI, like AI that you could kind of talk to, like even the level of AI we have right now, I think was somehow for me in the past, this weird blank. Um, and it, you know, it was just sort of like, oh, I don't even know what that would be. It's like a brain in a box. It's like a whole brain emulation. Somehow it was like, I barely knew what I was talking about. But now here I am. And it's like, the, you know, there's a real thing. And it, it emerged from a real specific kind of training process. And there's a you know, real specific set of capabilities and, and kind of compute requirements. And here I am, I'm living in my a specific house. I mean, in the same way, like all aspects of your future they're weirdly specific. You know, you imagine someday I will live in a house or someday I will like have a partner or someday I will. And then it's like, you, there's like one specific person, uh, you know, that's, it'll be like that with AI too, right? It's like, if you one day meet a super intelligence, it will be like actually super intelligent and it will be a bunch of other concrete ways. And you'll be, you know, dealing with a specific computer and there'll be a specific like set of other technologies and people and, and, and sort of just sort of kind of getting that dynamic in your bones, I think might be helpful in general to relating to like a, a possibly abstract future. Yeah, perhaps take us back to 2013, where you first heard about this concept. And how did you react? And, and, and why do you think you reacted that way? And perhaps this is useful, because some people might have those reactions today and, and might be, be going through the, the things that you, you've gone through now. Yeah, so I, I, yeah, I first heard about this in 2013. I was at a, a kind of picnic like thing um, in the UK, I would just started started a master's degree. And, and um, yeah, so I was talking, I ended up talking with someone who who was working at the Future of Humanity Institute, and, and we were talking about like big problems in the world, and, and he mentioned AI risk, and I just laughed, and I was just like, ah, you know, and, and I was like, is that like the movie iRobot? Um, no one ever does iRobot. Everyone always does Terminator, but iRobot I, I, I is the same, right? They're like, they some they told, I guess it's the Asimov thing, I forget, I forget exactly the plot, but it's like, somewhat spoiler alert, sorry people, but yeah, I think it's like they told some... It was the three laws of robotics, and then in order to to not harm the humans, it, the robots needed to kill a bunch of humans and take control. Can't help you here. I've never seen the movie. <laughs> okay. Well, what? Anyway, it's another. It's not just Terminator. You know, people yeah, have yeah. had this idea before. Um, I think this may even be in Colossus, the Forbin project. I think there's a bunch of there's a, a decent number of like people have this intuition that you know you give the AI the goal of something something that's supposed to be good, but oh, humans are so frail and bad that the the AI must take control from the humans. So anyway, so I said this, I was like, oh, like iRobot, 
And I was sort of like, ha, ha, ha. And I remember he was just sort of like stone-faced. He was like, mm. and, and I was sort of like, okay. Uh, anyway, and so so at the time I just laughed and I thought, it, I basically just thought it was weird. And 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 then I went on to learn more about it. I, I went on, you know, the book Superintelligence came out, I think relatively soon after. And, and um, you know, I read that and that kind of, uh, changed changed my view in a bunch of ways and started talking with talking with people and and kind of at that point I started to feel like oh there's a real argument here and in some sense the argument makes sense um, I didn't have a uh, some sort of knockdown to the argument um, I and it didn't feel to me like the world did either I remember actually going to a a person I met at the, again and I, I who was also in the space and I, I said something like you know like surely there are these like counter arguments though, right? Like there, there's gotta be like these like things, you know, I read this, but like, where are the, where are the people who are like saying why this is obviously wrong? And, you know, and he was just like, I don't know, man. Like what if it's just right? And I was, I was like, ah, <laughs> you know, so anyway, so there's like a long process of, of me kind of like getting more acquainted with this, having, having thought, thought it for myself. Um, but my initial reaction was like quite dismissive. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, understandable. It's just a weird, it's a very weird idea. It's an idea you first encountered in a context that is like fictional and silly. It's totally out of our kind of experience of other things. It's just not any, it, it's like very kind of disanalogous to anything we've we've seen already. Like if you want to talk about like, oh, an engineered pandemic, it's like, well, we have pandemics. Um, you know, you want to talk about nuclear war, well, we have you know, we have Hiroshima, we have the bombs, we have this whole history of like, this is a legit thing. We have think tanks, we have all this stuff. You want to talk about like super intelligent machines, like killing everyone. It's like, culturally, like, what are the reference points? Like, what is the epistemology we have around that? It's like, these movies, or at least it was back then. And even now, it's not as though we have, it's not especially kind of built up and rich. So I think that was a, a, a decent amount of, of what was going on. Yeah, and so we go to science fiction, we, we go to fiction in general to have some kind of anchor point, some kind of reference point to understand how we how we should frame this issue of, of AI risk, perhaps when we when we hear about it for the first time. So you mentioned bio risk and, and risk from nuclear weapons. Um, and there it's it does feel visceral. No one is laughing if we, if we talk about oh the, you know, the world might uh, go into a nuclear war. And and it's, it's very easy to understand how this would be extremely destruct, uh, destructive. Do, do, you think that, do you think that nuclear weapons felt the same way that AI uh, f feels now in, say, 1850 or uh, 1900 or something? Is it simply a question of, of the timeline? Well, I mean, they wouldn't have known about nukes sufficiently early, but I, th I think the... Ex um... that, yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> that's perhaps my point here, that it would have involved speculative science, perhaps in, in a bit in, in the way that, that AI risk does now. I actually think, you know, despite the fact that nukes are more concrete, I still actually think this dynamic of like there being an important difference between visceral, the abstract modeling and the visceral relationship to it, I actually expect that to apply in the context of nukes and bio too, just to, to a lesser extent. Like in, in particular, I think there's a certain kind of imaginative barrier that they don't, they don't create, which is you really know how you're dying. You really know the specific scenario that is occurring. Now, do you, how deeply do you know it? I, I actually think I, at one point when I, I was thinking about nukes, um, I went and watched, there were these, there were these movies and I think it was like the eighties where they just like depicted a nuclear exchange. Um, I think there is like threads and then like the day after or something like that. There was, I think there's a British one and a, and a US one. Very dark movies. It's, it's, They're it's very a, dark. Right? Yeah, and yeah. you would have thought, and, and I think that's actually an interesting example of the like um, the gut versus kind of abstract uh, kind of dichotomy in that, you know, the people who are watching those movies 
were, I think, you know, they had been living in the in the Cold War for. So my understanding is these movies were were reasonably influential on on the, on the popular consciousness and sort of. Um, I, I forget maybe Reagan watched them. I think there was something something about this anyway. And and but people knew people knew that there was you know they were they were living under the shadow of of the Cold War. I think there you know there are stories about people at Rand like not um, taking their pensions. There are all these intellectuals after after the world after World War II who thought the world was definitely going to end. And that is you know a separate separate bucket about like these people thought the world was going to end too hard. And maybe that's where we're at with AI. But um, there so there was this some sort of intellectual sense of like the world will end. Um, and people knew that about how it would end. But nevertheless, when when they watched those movies, and also for me, the movie still shakes you at a at a level. You know, it's a, it's a pretty generic depiction of like what will happen. Um, like, if, 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 I don't think there's anything like you're like, oh, that's really surprising necessarily. But nevertheless, it's quite it gets you. Uh, and I think and I think so that and you know I think the same is true of pandemics. I think the same is true. It's just really hard still to kind of make the the transition. You do just learn. Parts of your epistemic system still learn a bunch from engaging with something at a concrete level. So yeah, I don't I don't think nukes and nukes and, and bio are that different, but I do they do have that concreteness in terms of what's the mechanism. They do have the like we've seen we we know that this is like a real thing. You know we can see the nukes, we can see we can see like labs, we can see we can uh, you know we we have pandemics. So there's just sort of lower barriers I think to to kind of moving this from the realm of like ha ha to the realm of like serious thing that serious people worry about so there's something that worries me a bit about the talk about ai risk which is that at least in one framing things will begin things will accelerate in an extremely quick way and we won't see a gradual uh, increase in accidents such that for example we have an accident that kills 10 people and then two years later we have one that kills 100 people and then it it ramps up in 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 a, in a gradual way like that it's probably more like AI reaches a certain threshold of capability, and and from there on, we we could see a global level disaster. Does this make it kind of difficult to update along the way? Difficult to adjust our beliefs along the way? Difficult to find evidence for whether we're right or wrong? Perhaps difficult to debunk the idea of AI risk? I think it does. Yeah, I think um, we should distinguish the question: Is that the right story about how AI will play out? So I think there are stories where you get some amount of warning along the way. I'm sort of skeptical that that warning will take place at the level of like a gradually increasing number of deaths, particularly. I, I think there's like kind of important ways in which once people are like really dying at a, at a, a high level, you know, you're in a really scary scenario and it's, it's there's a kind of razor's edge like to, to thread the needle in terms of AIs that are able to kill like a million people, but not, not the whole world. It's sort of, you really had to have this like kind of capability level um, and the AIs needed to mess up too. I think it's a general thing. It's like the AIs, if they lost, if they lost a conflict, then um, they kind of miscalculated whether uh, whether to go for it. And um, you might worry about attributing such strategic errors errors to like things that you're positing are kind of more strategically sophisticated than yourself. But but it, it could happen. Um, so there's there are different degrees of of kind of continuity and, and gradualness in terms of the the warning signs you're seeing and how much time you have to react. I do think there are stories, it's very sudden, and you see very few view warning signs. It's like you're going along, um, and it's a bit like there's just a point where either you're going to die or you're not, and you're just, you're kind of not sure, and you're not getting any evidence as you go up to it. Um, and I think this is hard because it's a story that does just, yeah, just doesn't allow you to update very much. If it's truly supposed to be a case where you're not seeing warning signs, it's sort of everything is trucking along and looking great, and then 
you die or like sort of the, the like good scenario and the bad scenario look the same up until the last second, then that's just like a, a bad situation. I think we should be pretty surprised if that's true, just because, you know, it's it's sort of weird for the evidence to not kind of leak at all into the world as to like what's going on. I sort of expect, I think the, the, the a, a kind of more mainline scenario in which we're dying, it's sort of like kind of obvious to people we're going to die, not just in virtue of like abstract arguments, but it's just like clear that we don't understand how these systems are working. Like we've seen signs that they'll do bad stuff. Like there are people, it's it's not just like, oh, Eliezer is persisting in like thinking that that it's bad despite like no evidence. It's like, no, it's sort of like, oh my God. But nevertheless, the world is kind of barreling forward. There are like actors who don't buy it. There are kind of bad competitive dynamics. Um, so I, I actually think the mainline scenario is we get more, it's more clear empirically that, that, um, that kind of doom doom is ahead but there are there is this slice that's just like quite unfortunate epistemically where where you don't get very much warning perhaps in a sense is that the scenario we're in right now so we we have a a race dynamic between different top uh, companies in the space we have uh, distinguished experts warning about the risks and signing on to two statements about the risk we have uh we, we see increased capabilities um and we see how how systems can be misaligned. So, do you think, do, to what extent do you think we are on the path that you just described? Maybe somewhat, but I, I'm I'm thinking worse. I'm thinking, you know, we're getting evidence about threatening behavior that the models will engage in. We're getting evidence about the failure of various forms of kind of possible uh, alignment. We are we are seeing kind of breakdowns of cooperation. We're seeing kind of yeah, failures to kind of regulate wisely. We are uh, like, basically, you can just imagine like a bunch of other sources of hope. And this this is the sort of thing I think is actually really important to do in assessing kind of what my probabilities should be to really think about what is the future evidence I'm expecting to see that like this theory of why we'd be fine or why we would die predicts. Um, And I think there are just a bunch of remaining stories about why this um, like could go okay that make empirical predictions about what we should see happen. Sometimes it's like, oh, we'll make a bunch of progress. Oh, it'll be like, there'll be a bunch of fiddling. Oh, the people will like not want to deploy. Oh, people will slow down. There's like different different stories like that. And when those things persistently fail to happen, then you should be getting more and more worried. Or if that's where your, that's where your hope is coming from, you should, you should expect to see that stuff. And then if you don't, you should change your view. Um, and so I think there's a bunch of that left uh, where uh, things could could kind of end up looking looking more rosy. We could, you know, seeing how these systems are trained, seeing what sorts of systems, seeing what behaviors they're they're doing, um, like how much progress is being made in, in various kind of alignment relevant fields or not. And the not ones look a lot scarier, I think, than than where we are now. You talk about the unreality of the future. Why, why does the f- future feel unreal to us, do you think? I think just tons of stuff feels unreal to us. I think they're like my neighbor, I, I, I here I am in a house, there are like people next door to me in the, in their house. And I just don't think about them at all, right? They're sitting there fully real, fully concrete with, the, you know, detailed, textured inner lives and struggles and memories and they have childhoods. And just, I just think like, it's the default. You have a bounded mind. Your mind can only model like a tiny amount of the world. The world is this vast space. So I just think the kind of um, the past stuff, you know, your friends, people you've never met, just everything is unreal to us. Um, and the future is maybe slightly worse because we kind of can't go there. Um, you haven't seen it directly. It's like more different. It's sort of maybe depending on your kind of discount rights, it's like less relevant to your, your kind of action now. But, uh, I actually think it's sort of not a, a kind of uniquely future problem. I think it's a bounded mind problem. 
um, and one that like a huge portion of like ethical and epistemic life is about kind of overcoming is sort of having an actual model of the world that that starts to make up for what the sort of gaps in what your brain will do just by default. Do, do you think different different um, things are required for different people to to begin believing in the concreteness of the future? So, so you talked about, for example, visual, visualizing how things might actually concretely happen. Could it also be about seeing famous credentialed people saying that, that that this could go wrong? Could it could it be more of a social thing that we begin believing more in AI risk? I think that about AI risk in particular. So so. A thing that could can be going on with with people's sort of skepticism or dismissiveness towards AI risk, I, I would say is is a sort of somewhat distinct from the concreteness thing, though it's it's related, is um is some sort of sense that they the evidence that they're interested in is centrally social, that that they want to be seeing signs from the kind of broader world's epistemology that this is a real thing. And what that looks like in particular is kind of expert agreement. And uh, or expert, you know, sort of, or you're seeing it on the cover of Time magazine or whatever. You're seeing it's it's you know, the pres- presidents or you, prime ministers are talking about it and um, and and stuff like that. And if that's not happening, then they're they're, they're sort of going to bucket it in the like large swath of ideas that they haven't you know tried to debunk. Who knows? Could be superficially plausible, but like I don't have time to look at everything. Like I'm going to wait for something to kind of filter through a bunch of other uh, kind of forms of checking and, and evidence and stuff like that until until I believe it. So I think that a lot of that is going on too. I think there, there's even some small part of that for me where, you know, you know, as someone who was sort of thinking about this, you know, prior to this sort of recent outpouring of of kind of um sympathy and 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 kind of public uh you know public concern, there is this sort of part of you that hopes that, you know, it's all fake and that somehow people know And and that like that you know later when when people finally get around to debunking it they will like point at the obvious flaw and like say like oh of course and and then you can be like oh good like you know I, but like it's not good when people like finally look at your thing and go like oh no and then you're like no come on like uh, and so um, there is a way in which I think even even for for folks who are sort of pretty inside view bought in that the like the fact that that the kind of the rest of the world starts to to get on board or get get more sympathetic can make a difference and should make a difference to the extent you have any residual deference to or whatever, you know, some people, they were like, ah, oh, of course I don't care. But, um, and then I think, I think in terms of the connection with concreteness, to the extent that that is your kind of crux, I think people should do the same exercise I was talking about before where, where you know, so various people, for example, have said, you know, in the past, there were tons of people saying like the experts aren't worried. Right. And the, the thing that I would, ur- would have urged at the pa- you know, in the past, Or, you know, if we apply the lesson of this essay to the past, then they, I, I would have urged something where you ask, like, okay, so what is the probability that I will see in the future experts getting worried? I don't want to just ask right now. I want to ask, like, you know, in the future and over the whole scope of the time in which, you know, I'll be getting evidence about this. What's the probability I'll see the experts get worried? And then how worried will I want to be then, right? Like, to the extent I'm claiming that the important thing for me is expert consensus, like, What what will my credence be? Conditional expert consensus, and and what's the probability of that occurring? And similarly, you know, there's various people who are like, where's the paper in Nature, or like, where's the peer review, or where's the demonstration that this happens in the lab, or or whatever whatever it is. And I'm like, okay, great. Like, if that's your crux, like, let make the predictions. Like, really ask, like, okay, what's the probability that I see that thing, not just now, but in the future? Um, or you know, people are like GPT four can't do blah, or I don't think it. Can. And it's like okay, but in the future, when when you see it, th- what's your probability that you'll see a thing in the future that does that thing? And then what will you think? So just in general, I think 
Um, expert consensus is an example of something you might have not seen in the past, but that uh, will, you know, possibly possibly occur, and and to which you should be sort of responsive um, ahead of time. Yeah, and it also makes it much easier to then have the discussion about whether whether expert consensus would matter if you have some some probability is assigned to. You know, an expert will will publish something in Nature about this, or we will see whatever metric of of, of expert agreement on this point. So, so there's the question of updating beliefs. There's also the question of of our the starting point for beliefs, our, our priors, we could say. Um, to what extent do you think that disagreements are a product of some pe- of, of varying degrees of putting all sci-fi scenarios in the fantasy bucket to begin with? And maybe some people are more open to fanta- to to sci-fi scenarios becoming real, and some people are less open to that. And so, if your if your if your starting point, if your prior belief is extremely low credence in any sci-fi scenario, then you could see how how it would be difficult to ever come to believe in AI risk. Yeah, I think so. I do think priors, something in the vicinity of priors, that's an, is a sort of very important crux and difference in how people are approaching this. Um, I think it's kind of. Yeah, you know, if if you want to frame it in particular about sci-fi scenarios, I think we do need to talk about like what counts as sci-fi. Like, is the world today perhaps <laughs> filled with sci-fi scenarios from 1900? Is your point? There was recently some some um, some kind of climate novel. I'm forgetting forgetting the name, but uh, uh, the Ministry Ministry for the Future, something like that, right? And and so okay, so you know, is this a sci-fi scenario? It's sort of like you're trying you're trying to imagine ahead of time. But let's say what they did is they literally took like the IPCC. Um, forecasts or something, and then tried to write some like fiction around it. Um, and so I, you know, or you don't want, you don't want to just like cut anything that appeared in a sci-fi book out of your kind of what, what can happen. Um, or, you know, if you're like, ah, in the future, like solar will be cheaper and it's like, okay, but you should just like check on like the trend line with solar. Like don't, don't sort of say it won't happen because, because it's in, in a sci-fi book. That said, I, I think in general, there is a, there is like an important sort of prior at work here. And I think there is, are important differences where, so I mean, the prior that does some some initial work for me is just like, you know, for any given thing that someone says will happen in the future, like for kind of a suitably specific thing, you know, your prior is sort of like, no, it won't. Or like you need you need some reason to think to privilege the hypothesis that some like story about the future is true, because just kind of hypotheses kind of need privileging by default. And there's kind of a question of like, okay, what's the burden of proof? How, how, how much work, how much evidence needs to be supplied before something can kind of uh, make it into like, oh, that's, that's pretty good. Um, and I think a lot of people, including myself, who, who come at this from a, a kind of more skeptical angle or who did in the past, I think start with some sense of like, eh, there's like a kind of strong burden of proof here. Like you can make arguments for lots of things. There were arguments about nanotech destroying the world. There are arguments about Ben Garfinkel on a recent podcast. He gave this example of like honeybees or, you know, you can, there's like lots of things that people have thought would destroy the world. One that sticks, that sticks for me some, somewhat is like, you know, the, the sort of population bomb people, they have these like pretty simple arguments. I'm going to be honest. I think those arguments were kind of simpler and kind of at a basic level, more compelling of like, just like on the first first pass, you just look and it's like, here's the population graph people. And here's what happens with like Petri dishes and, and bacteria. And like, what do you think is going on? And, and, you know, I think like, obviously you can talk about the demographic, uh, you know, transition. You can talk about like, ah, oh, we can get more resources if, you know, if, if it's incentivized, but like at a first pass at a sort of like, ah, oh, like how sensitive are you to arguments? I mean, that was like, not that bad. Right. And they were catastrophically wrong. Um, and, and, and I think that's, that's like a really important, like warning, in high school, I got all sorts of like really intense uh, climate catastrophizing. I remember seeing a sort of a, a documentary that was very much like, we will Venus 
we will be Venus if we don't like overthrow global capitalism in the next, you know, whatever, yesterday. Uh, and, and I remember, you know, watching this documentary and I, I walked out and, and I was like, did you guys see that documentary? Like, that was great. You know, but I'm, I'm still glad that I did not like totally upend my life. I mean, you know, there's a question of what's going on here, but I don't think we should just like grab whatever. There's a bunch of mimetic dynamics at stake in kind of like which kind of emergencies or catastrophes get exaggerated. I think like, I think it's reasonable for people to kind of come at this with like some default skepticism. And I think there's some, and, and that can, that can anchor you at a, at a low level. I think there's a different sort of prior that people who are more scared are using, which is something like they start with the idea of like, okay, suppose you get a, uh, like a, another species on this planet that is like super intelligent and like much more, much more intelligent than humans. Conditional on that, like what is your sort of prior that things are great you're, or, you know, uh, every, you know, humans still have control over what's going on. Um, uh, and if you can get yourself to doing that move, then I think, um, then, you know, it's sort of easier to be like prior, like, I don't know, like, that sounds rough. Like, how did this happen? Like, what, you know, why, why, why would I think it went well? Like, you know, it seems like the default is like, they're calling the shots and like, you know, what, what are they, what are their shots and how did, how did that end up happening? So I think if you, if you, if you start with that sort of orientation and, and then I think it's, it's actually relatively easy to get to a kind of high level of concern. Yeah, when I'm listening to you now and when I think these thoughts myself, I can feel my probabilities or my credences in AI risk jumping around. So, so if, we, if we start from one frame, we start off from the frame of here is a big bucket of sci-fi scenarios. Now we pick one of them. Could that be real? And that's probably, it's probably not going to happen. Like, like a lot of the other scenarios are probably not going to happen. And then if, you, if we take the, the other framing, thinking about you know, when was the last time a species on Earth, on Earth remained in control? Control while a more intelligent species roamed around. From that framing, it now seems very plausible that AI risk is real and it's going to happen. So is this just a, a sign of me being confused or, or if, if we can change the, I don't know if reference, maybe reference class is the right word here. If we can change the reference class or the framing of, of the question and have our probabilities or credences jump around that much, are we just fundamentally confused? And should we, should we approach the problem from another angle, perhaps? I don't know if we're fundamentally confused. I think we're... Maybe you know, I'm fundamentally confused. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if you are. I guess I think this is sort of what epistemology sort of looks like. You think about things in different ways, and, you know, you, you, and then you try to synthesize stuff into an overall view. I think, yeah, I don't have a royal road on that front. I think sometimes people, it feels like people kind of assume they know, they're like, ah, this is a reference class thing. And then they, they assume they know how to proceed from there or something. Or like, they assume there's some way to like ignore the reference classes and like just reason about it or something. I'm kind of like, I don't know. It just, it feels like in general, this is just a tough, it's a tough game. I, I, and, but I don't think you can just, I don't think we're kind of fundamentally confused in the sense that I think there are just concrete empirical questions at stake here in terms of like how many humans are alive um you know how much energy is our civilization using like what you know how what, what's going on with our computers and i think there may, may be some conceptual confusion that makes you know you you can imagine like conceptual confusion around notions like agency or some of this other some of these other things kind of making this discourse not even wrong or in, in some sense kind of having missed having missed the the kind of basic story but so i think that the ai risk discourse lives in a certain sort of ontology like it sort of lives in this ontology of agents pursuing goals and the concern is that we will build minds that are kind of uh, agents pursuing goals and the goals will be kind of contrary to to our interests um and and but the goals will give rise to these instrumental incentives to kind of avoid being turned off and gain resources and kind of and stuff like that and then and then these agents will be the ones whose goals sort of 
um, govern uh, the sort of uh, direction of, of life on Earth going forward, right? So that's, that's I think, and then actually, I think there are some, especially in the early history of, of kind of the AI risk discourse, there was an even more kind of rich and questionable set of kind of ontological assumptions at stake. So there's this notion that, that, that the right way to understand the, the, um, the goals of an AI system is via the uh, kind of utility function. The utility function will be maximized because like, and the reason, for, the reason utility function, you should do that is because there are these like, in some senses, what like rational agency, this is the kind of convergent natural structure of rational agency will have utility function because of something, something coherence theorems. This is a somewhat parody, but I actually think Eliezer just thinks this. I think he thinks the coherence theorems and like the natural structure utility thing, as far as I can tell, that's like an important part of his picture. But, and then, and then you'll maximize, you, you got to like maximize really hard in the utility function and the utility functions diverge when you maximize them really hard. So like, there's a bunch of stuff there um, that I think is actually sort of, this is like a kind of philosophical ontology. It's, it's, it's a sort of, um, but it's an empirical prediction as well about like which what is the right way to carve up the sort of forces that drive the future and and the and the sort of empirical prediction is that the right way to carve them up is sort of as agents with values utility functions maybe and I think there's I think it's possible that that is an important sense of kind of uh, wrong or incomplete or kind of like overly confident ontology on its own that that's that in some sense this is like not the right the right way to carve up what's happening in the world in terms of like there are agents, they have values. That said, I think it's like hard to say that this is like totally ruled out. Like there are agents that do have values, right? Like, or at least to to some extent, like we, it, there's, there is a kind of, you know, important sense in which, I don't know, someone running for president is like trying to win. Or, you know, there's an important sense in which like Google is like trying to make profit. Um, there's an important sense in which I am like trying to get something from my fridge when I, when I do that. Or <laughs> so you're thinking we can all we can always describe something as an agent pursuing goals. So we can very often frame it theoretically in that way. No, no, I, I, I mean, sort of the opposite. I think like it's not the case that this is just a sort of random like, oh, it's sort of a way of thinking. I'm like, no, I think this is actually like a really important, true thing that can happen. Um, you know, like you can just like, you can build a system that is rightly understood as pursuing some goals and, you know, like, uh, Hitler <laughs> or something, you know, like, uh, you know, that's like a thing that can happen. Um, and you know, exactly what you want to say about that or like how common that is and how much it'll crop up, you know, in the context of gradient descent and how hard it will be to like build systems that are otherwise useful that don't have that property. All of that is a, is a kind of further and more detailed question. But I think like, it seems unlikely to me that like the, the idea of agency or the, the, the kind of possibility of machines that are both super intelligent and agentic and pursuing goals that are um, kind of contrary to interest. That doesn't, I don't think that's like, I think there are empirical scenarios would be like, yep, that is occurring. Like you could in principle build a paperclip maximizer and it could in principle kill you and turn the world into paperclips. I think that's like an empirical scenario. If we saw that happen, we'd be like, yep, that was not a conceptual confusion. That is an empirical scenario rightly described by those concepts. But I still think there's ways in which we, we might be leaning on those concepts quite a bit harder than they warrant. Or that's one of my, that's one of my most salient kind of ways in which the discourse might be kind of confused at a fundamental level as opposed to like wrong empirically about about what'll what'll happen. So it, would this be an instance of of there being no danger then if we are conceptually confused this way or would the danger just look different? Would the risks look different? So for example, what I'm imagining now is that AIs stay mostly tools for us and they are they don't become agentic, they don't have goals in a, in any traditional sense. Uh, are you thinking about how that how that scenario could still be be dangerous? That scenario could be dangerous in various ways, but I just think it wouldn't qualify as a, a misalignment x risk. In 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 particular, I think the notion of misalignment is kind of importantly 
related to the notion of kind of agency and, and goal pursuit. And some people have tried to frame it without that. And I'm kind of like, well, I don't know. I really think, I really think it's, it's, it's structural to the story. The way in which I see this as a possible comfort is not that it's impossible to build the agential or like the agentic scary things. It's just that it's sort of less central to the general, the general worry is that the, the sort of dangerous type of thing is also um, really, really closely related to the like useful type of thing. Um, and, you know, the, the type of thing that's useful for kind of understanding our AI systems better and making progress in alignment or doing, doing a lot of the stuff that might kind of mitigate some of the risks and get us to a safer situation. The thought is, no, in order to do that with our AIs, you need to build the really, really scary type of thing. Um, and I think it's possible that, in fact, we can do more to kind of separate different types of minds and kind of get useful work out of minds that are, in some sense, uh, not uh, kind of doing the agency thing we're worried about. I think that is harder than people think. In particular, I think like, as you see with GPT-4 and stuff like this, there, there are systems that I think are not in the relevant sense agentic or scary. But it's in, but the fact that they're smart and kind of um, otherwise kind of intelligent means that they're intelligent in the way that agency takes advantage of. And we see you can just like take GPT-4, which is not, I think, relevantly agentic, and then build it into an agent very fast by asking a question. It's like, what would an agent do here? And then you have a different thing that does that. And so I think there's this great post that I think maybe is sort of under, under reference, but, but it's, it's something like optimality is the tiger agents are the teeth. And the sort of the, the basic, the basic dynamic is kind of, it's really intelligence. that's the scary thing. If you have a system that is not itself an agent, but a, able to like accomplish goals in the world, um, it's at least kind of agency adjacent. And so th it, I think it's hard to separate these things too hard or too, too, too far, but it's still, um, I think there's still hope there. Uh, and, and sort of, there's a kind of spectrum of how, of how much hope, how much hope you get out of that. And I think, I, I think the, the doomiest worlds are the ones where there's very little. Yeah. We are trying very hard to turn our current uh, large language models into agents. We're enhancing them with say more short-term memory or linking them together, having them collaborate and so on. And so you could see how agent or agentic behavior would arise out of, out of, uh, more tool-like intelligence. I definitely see that. Okay, if, if we get back to the to the question of our gut feelings versus, versus our um, more formalized models or uh, our more uh, intellectual posture to the world, is there a potential danger in us becoming alienated from ourselves if, if we begin to rely more and more on formal models and, and kind of intellectual life as opposed to, to connecting with our gut feelings? I, so I think there is that danger at both on an epistemic level and at a kind of motivational human level. So I think, I think at an epistemic level, as I said before, I do think your gut provides a bunch of signal if you decide, I, and I think some, some folks, I'm hanging out in sort of the effective altruism community. And, and I think a lot of, a lot of people in that space will sometimes update very hard against their gut and they'll really decide, you know, oh, my gut doesn't, can't do scope sensitivity or it can't do, and then they'll just be like, gut, you know what, you are out. Um, and like, I'm, I am a, a rational person now. I am like an abstract. That is the only kind of part of my epistemology I trust. And I think that's like throwing out a bunch of information and kind of uh, hobbling your, your, even your epistemic practice in important ways. And then separately, I think it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily make for a kind of very human or kind of engaged or rich, alive, kind of fully mobilized relationship to, especially if you're like working on this stuff all the time, um, or, or even just trying to think about like, what should I do? 
if you're sort of your whole body doesn't believe it or you're, you're kind of a bunch of parts of your mind don't believe it, then that those parts are like, sorry, why am I moving my arms? Like, I don't, I don't <laughs> like, I didn't, you know, tell me something, I, you know, tell me something I care about here or something like, tell me something real. And you're like, no, no, I, I decided to throw you under the bus, but I've got this abstract model and it's sort of like, oh, okay. You know, but whereas if you're like actually kind of fully thinking about it and kind of having a kind of more cooperative, even if, you know, at least your gut should like engage or sort of, you know, be like, okay, I grant that I can't see this, but I sort of, you know, I'll, I'll give you this one abstraction, like, okay, you know, I don't know, there's some, some, some way of, of not just suppressing or, or kind of cutting off that part of your life. Because I think if you cut it off, then, then it is, you're cutting off a big part of yourself and your whole self is the thing that needs to act and think and kind of live in relationship to this stuff. Yeah, and it's probably not even possible to cut off the system. Like, if you, even if you pretend to to cut off your your gut feelings, you will you will be in a adversarial relationship to yourself, basically, and and not being able to coherently uh, implement or integrate whatever you believe about AI into your into your daily life. I would I would imagine at least. I, yeah, I think I think that that can happen, and in fact, that can happen too hard in the other way, where I think, and this is something I don't talk about in the post very much, but that that came up in some of the comments where where there is also this opposite kind of art of managing your guts, possibly destabilizing or overly intense relationship to these ideas where I think, I think, you know, this is really scary stuff. And so on the one hand, I think it's, um, uh, it's, it kind of can be useful and important to kind of mobilize your whole like visceral self in relationship to it. On the other hand, that can very easily become kind of too much or overwhelming or people can, it can be a kind of um, detriment to their motivations or their orientation in the world, um, their ability to act wisely or practically. Uh, and so in that case, you, you almost want to go the other way. You want to be like, okay, gut, like this is actually too much. Or there, there's a whole, there's a whole dance in the other direction that um, I think is, is for some people, the main dance. Some people, they are not actually afflicted with this sort of like, oh, things don't feel visceral for me. It's like much the opposite. They're like, whoa, like that is like too visceral for me. That is something I like can't handle. And they're, and they're doing a different, a different game. I think it warrants like a whole, a sort of whole different discussion that I haven't, I haven't really gotten into. Yeah. How, how much individual variability do you think there is here? Uh, so, so there are people perhaps who trust their gut way too much and people who trust their gut uh, not nearly enough. <laughs> do you think perhaps AI risk uh, attracts a, a certain type of person on that spectrum? I mean, I would guess that people who are attracted to AI risk are people who are fairly model first in their epistemology, right? I think because AI risk is not sort of like, if you're just like, do I feel it in my body that, uh, you know, AI is about to kill me without, you know, you never looked at the scaling laws. You didn't, it, now I think people might actually, I do think like when you, you know, it might all, it might be that all it takes is like you hang out with chat GBT and you're like, mm. like your body actually feels it even independent of a bunch of, any, whether you've ever heard of any of this uh, instrumental convergence or whatever, whatever, you're just like, mm. this was what I was thinking, actually, I, 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 perhaps we are about to live in a world in which you can sit, you can take out your smartphone, you can talk to something that looks very much like a human, something that talks very much like a human, something that has facial expressions, at, uh, inflection, uh, different kind of uh, tones in, in, in its voice and so on. But it is it is basically a, an AI model. Uh, perhaps that world is coming quite soon. And in a sense, uh, the the playing field uh, for the for the gut reactions could be about to change uh, very drastically. I think that's totally right. I do also think though that that playing field is going to be all over the map, right? Like people are going to be having gut reactions, especially because you know these AIs are going to be optimized to like 
even as we're bringing the AIs online, we're also bringing on like unprecedented power to like manipulate <laughs> human psychology. I mean, we're bringing on unprecedented power in just like a zillion directions. That's like part of what's intense about the about the situation. But um, yeah, you know, it's going to be hard. Like when every AI, if you're if every AI you interact with is like hyper hot or something, or like you know, or like hyper charismatic or like hyper you know, otherwise um, kind of uh, sympathetic you know, that's going to matter as opposed to every AI you interact with is like a clanky robot or, you know, and so I think it's going to be a challenge in general to trust our guts in a bunch of ways as our guts are being kind of newly assaulted with like different types of stimuli and different forms of optimization. Um, but I think at a basic level, it is going to be, I think it's it's more likely, it's less likely that people will be like, this is unreal in its entirety. Like, I don't know what you're talking about with AI. It's like, they're going to start, they're going to be encountering AI more and more directly in their lives. They're going to be asking themselves questions like, what is this creature? Like, what is this mind? What does it understand? Like, what are, you know, I think we're going to be talking a lot more about AI sentience and rights and stuff like that. I think there's just going to be a bunch of new questions that are going to come up that people are going to, that are just going to be a lot less intellectual for people and a lot more here and now. Yeah, I, I think on balance, it would probably be great if more people sat down and, and, created some models for how they think about AI risk and uh, perhaps AI sentience and so on. I, But I don't expect that to happen. I expect people to to update mostly on what is what is coming at them in, the, in this kind of the stream of, of uh, sensory expressions and, and ideas you're hearing on podcasts and videos you're seeing online. And so without without ever forming a, an actual model uh, of, of the space. So per, perhaps, perhaps on balance, we, we should have more models. I guess like at the very least, the old thing I was sort of doing was there's a statement like, don't just go with your gut, crunch the numbers and then go with your gut. We, you know, and, and, the, and the thing, which is different from shut up and multiply, it's, it's, it's actually there's a still like you crunch the numbers, you see what your gut thinks about that exercise, and then you go with your gut. I think I've sort of moved. I want to actually go a little further towards like crunch the numbers, see what your gut thinks. And then and then it's like, maybe your gut's wrong. Maybe the numbers are wrong. It's a tough game. Um, but I think it's like important, it, you know, in some sense, your gut might believe the numbers too. Like your gut might change as a result of your modeling exercise. So I don't even think this is a sort of like, do you like your gut or not? Your gut wants this information too. I think if you if you have the time and, and the interest, I think it's worth like really thinking ahead, especially given that these ideas are very high stakes. There's going to be a bunch of like, discourse and possibly like the AIs are going to start participating in a bunch of this, like the whole world might be getting like quite intense epistemically soon. Um, you know, it's good to have thought stuff through, you know, and, and I think both both parts of your, your or all of yourself can benefit from that. Do you think you've benefited from having these models available? You, you were perhaps earlier than the world in some sense, you were interested in, the, in these ideas before they became mainstream. Do, do you think you've benefited epistemologically from having these explicit models? In some sense, I think I've benefited in the way that people who are willing to like try to make forecasts at all benefit, which is like you do actually eventually get feedback. You know, it's like eventually someone actually is right and someone is wrong. And it can it can actually be easy to forget that somehow when you're like just like opining. You're, it's sort of easy to look at like what will provoke like blah reaction right now or like what will be seen as smart right now. But there's this great thing about about kind of forecasting um, which is that like eventually the actual world really says what what who was right and wrong. And then like the people who are wrong is like they were wrong. Now, I don't and, and I don't think we should like be be mad, especially people who are willing to make forecasts and they ended up wrong. I'm like, oh great. Like I don't think we should be be too hard on people who 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 went on a limb and, and and were mistaken, even if they were like kind of importantly mistaken. Part of the benefit of having models is you can learn and update. Whereas if you're just going on your gut, then you can just sort of careen around and not actually be quite sure what you're supposed to be learning 
Um, you can just be sort of like associating with different things. Oh, this idea is high status now. Oh, this like, apparently this person's not into it. You can just be sort of this like big moosh. Whereas if you, if you had like made predictions, you're like, oh, I thought it was going to be like this. Then uh, you can like learn more about, about what went right or wrong in, with your kind of past cognition. I, actually, I, th I think it's probably faster to do that if you just like get on Metaculus or get on, um, you know, manifold markets and kind of uh, j make even shorter term forecasts. And I think it's like not that different. Um, it's sort of beneficial regardless. Do you think it's even possible to to create your own models if you're not doing this in a professional capacity? So, I mean, there's a difference between perhaps, uh, you know, being paid to do this and sitting down and taking a few years to make a model. And, you know, how, how good will such a model be compared to doing it on the weekends or whenever you, you have time to think about how to create a model of, of AI risk? Basically, do you think amateur models of AI risks, uh, risk, uh, are these models worth doing? I think they are. I think in general, there's a um, some sort of art to like doing the short versions of like potentially long or infinite tasks. And, uh, you know, it's not I don't think it's something I like totally excel at, but I think it's 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 something I like really respect and think is good and, and have, have kind of tried to get better at, which is like, you know, there's something that you think will take three months, like first do the day long version, then do, you know, the, and see what happened there and then do the week long version and do the day long version that that like isn't the start of the three month version. It's like the compression. It's the like get to the bottom line. If you, you know, if you have a weekend, if it's a really important question, sp spending some time to like literally write down what you literally think, um, just write it down. It doesn't need to be right. It doesn't need to be, doesn't need to be sort of anything except really written down and, and you're, you're sort of best shot right now if you had to, if you had to kind of gun to your head. Um, I think, I think there are benefits to that, um, even if you don't have time for more. What, what do you think about the, the so the, the finiteness of, of human life, the fact that we are going to die? How do you think this 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 might feel unreal this might feels like an unreal part of the future for, for many of us at least it does for me um how do you think this reacts uh, or relates to to thinking about ai risk one of the examples in in the essay that that's sort of salient to me in the context of places where our gut doesn't actually kind of reflect the full story or it's like places where where there is this dynamic of kind of predictable updating in the future so i, I often think of this sort of I don't know, archetype of someone who's getting, getting, you know, they're sitting there, they just got the the kind of scans back telling them that they have cancer or something. And, and, and it's like, they have three months to live and there's some sort of update that they make, or, you know, and they'd known the whole time that they were going to die somehow. Maybe, maybe this isn't even like a sort of weird time. This was like a median prediction of like uh, when they'll die and, and how or something like that. But nevertheless, there's a sort of real change in your relationship to this fact. Um, there's a sort of difference between kind of believing something and realizing it. And it's like a really practical difference, right? So often when people, there's this sort of trope of someone gets this information then they, they walk out into the world and they, they're orienting towards it in a very different way. They're like, they're treating their relationships as more precious. They're treating certain things as like unimportant. Somehow like they're, everything is, you know, they're seeing beauty in a different way. They're, their whole relationship with the world is kind of altered in light of this kind of fact that they already knew being somehow more, more real. So I think this is like a this is a classic in in sort of human culture. We have a a, a buildup of experience with the way in which death, in particular, can seem unreal to our guts, even though it's sort of intellectually um, something we're we're confident about. Modulo a bunch of transhumanism and stuff. Um, I think that's to me that's its, it's sort of central role, and I, I, I it's just as an example of of a case where we do this. And also, I think it's an interesting case where we have something like this Bayesian dynamic is sort of where you're trying to update on your future evidence is actually a part of 
some some aspects of popular popular culture. So so I, I there's a song I reference in in the, in the essay. Um, I think it's Tim Tim McGraw or something. Uh, it's a live like you were dying, and it's about like oh, I went skydiving. He's like a guy who got who got these things, and but it's 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 poking you to do this thing of like update ahead of time. You will you will later kind of realize this. It's sort of the 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 song's kind of nudge is like you're already dying. You don't need to get the scans. Um, you can do this now, and all these sort of like memento mori practices we have. Um, are kind of oriented in a similar direction, that there's something to learn here. We need to be actively trying to learn it ahead of time. And I think that actually is a reflection. There's like a Bayesian structure underneath that, that kind of very rich and important human practice. And I think, so I think it's an interesting example in that respect. And then also I think it's like, the, if to the extent the AI will kill us, it might contribute to the AI's unreality. If you're the sort of person who finds it like unreal that you will die at all, um, that will might extend to like dying in like ridiculous sci-fi ways. Sorry, ridiculous, but you know, kind of very unusual sci-fi ways. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Okay, so so you had this report about power-seeking AI as an existential risk, and you published it originally, I think, in in 2021. I, I recommend people uh, read this. Uh, by the way, it's a uh, for a long time, people have been talking about the lack of sort of a coherent argument with with premises and a and a, a you know a valid argument where a conclusion follows in in as opposed to a, a very uh, very long post say and and I think this uh, this report you wrote is is that argument you you, you published this in 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 twenty twenty one and then you and in the original report you estimated something like a five percent risk of extinction from AI before twenty seventy then one year passes and you update this estimate in twenty twenty two you you say there's now a ten percent uh, risk or probability of of extinction before twenty seventy how did this come about how did you update this is this is perhaps what what we've been talking about this whole time. How how did this update come come about? Because it is a, a doubling. It is a pretty big update to make. One thing I want to clarify at the outset is I um, that is supposed to be a sort of subjective estimate of the risk. It's not supposed to be tracking what's what's sometimes called a like objective probability or like propensity in the world. So I don't think it's like the world was sitting there back in 2021 with like like a coin with a you know a one in 20 chance of coming up heads and then like it's a new coin. I'm like, guys, like the world has changed. And now it's now it's a one in 10. Um, it's more that my own uh, estimate just went up. Uh, and and even then, I I also want to caution, like, it's not as though I, um, and this is part of what was going on. I don't think I had like some like, super fleshed out like Bayesian model. Like, there's, you know, I like, I tried to pull some numbers out of my gut for for the, um, the premises and the argument and like, think about it and, you know, come up with a final answer. And then I sort of did a bit more of that. Um, didn't have. I, I also didn't sort of complete that process, but I was like, oh gosh, this is the five percent is too low, and so I threw in this correction. Yeah. So what? I mean, what happened there? There were a bunch of different things. One is like I, I published that report, got a bunch of feedback from people. Like we we solicited reviews, uh, which people can read online. A number of them were like really thoughtful and and engaged. Um, and so I felt like I learned stuff from that. I also just like reflected more, and I was just like, I think this is too low. Um, I think I just like, I, and so that there were a few things going on there. One was this dynamic that I mentioned in the essay that we've been talking about here, where I tried to imagine, so the, the, the structure of the report has these different premises. And the first one is sort of a timelines premise about like, uh, we will get sort of relevantly agentic and advanced systems by 2070. What's the probability of that? Um, or it'll be feasible to develop them. Um, and I was at like 65% on that. And so my overall probability distribution was implying that um, conditional on getting those systems I was going to still be at like whatever 92 above 92% that we'd be we'd be okay from an x risk from misalignment perspective and um 
And I think I just didn't expect to feel that way when I was really like, I mean, you know, there's some ambiguity about how, how powerful the systems are at stake in that, in that premise. But I think, especially when I imagine like really powerful systems or like billions of them, or, you know, and they're like outstripping humans and science and strategy and, and like persuasion and, and, and AI R and D and, and they're just kind of formidable in tons of ways and thinking like super, super fast. I like didn't, I don't expect to like, actually when I'm really seeing that thing and I'm really there in that world, which I was saying is more likely than not before I, you know, within my lifetime, that I'm just going to be like, ah, eh, 92% will be good. I was sort of like, ah, eh, I don't know. I think this is going to be scarier than that. Um, and so uh, that was like one basic update, which is, this, you know, a sort of fairly simple thing that the, the essay is trying to trying to go into. And then there was a bunch of other stuff. Um, you know, I, I thought more about like takeoff speed stuff. I tried to like estimate it in different ways. Um, I did, I spent more time, yeah, kind of breaking things down by timelines and, and sort of different scenarios. Yeah. So there's just like, a, there were various things. I, you know, I, and, and I was sort of doing other things and I got pulled into some other stuff. So I didn't have time to kind of complete this process of changing, changing it. I've actually been returning to some of that recently, but, um, uh, so I, I just like threw in a, I actually, I think this is too, this is too low. Cause I didn't, I didn't like it sort of sitting, sitting out there, uh, without, without, without reflecting what it, what it changed. Do you think we'll then see a 2023 update saying perhaps now the risk from extinction is 15% or do you think you're moving in that direction? The thing I threw in there was actually, I think it's greater than 10%. And I left this sort of frustratingly ambiguous and people have been like, what do you mean greater like that? And that could mean a lot of things. I'm like, it could mean a lot of things. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, I didn't I didn't want to just pin it down because I hadn't like spent enough time with it. And I yeah, it's, I'm not actually at 10%. I'm actually feeling kind of comfortably above 10%. We don't actually sit around with like, ah, I have my number on every day and I write it down or something like that. Let's say the, the real number is 20. Uh, do, you, do you spend any time thinking about the, the remaining 80%? Do you spend any time thinking about how wonderful things could become if we if we uh, survive and if we have uh, aligned AGI? Or, or does this, is this perhaps a... <laughs> bad way to spend your time if we are in in a very important time in human history where we have to get this problem right should we should we spend time thinking about utopia well i think there's a few different few different things you could think about in that 80 percent. there's like the very good scenarios of like utopia there's the bad scenarios where the misalignment wasn't the issue but there was other bad stuff going on um but also you got really intense ai and then there's the scenarios where you didn't get a ai in a relevant sense at all um and you're wondering, you're wondering what else could could be important. I do spend time thinking about, I guess, all of those buckets. The the utopia one is sort of less. It's more about how do we move probability mass to that, or or, or and and what's at stake in that, and and kind of what what's the ethics of of sort of the the thing that we're shooting for here. I do think there are other risks other than misalignment, and I think you know it's it, they're in a complicated relationship with misalignment because they can be there can be a tension where if you're concerned about sort of human misuse, for example, um, I think there are a lot of overlaps, especially in the near term, as you know, a lot of the a lot of the bad stuff that we're worried about misaligned systems doing is also stuff that humans who are trying to do bad stuff with AIs could do. In some sense, it's like the human can supply the ingredient that um, misalignment is supposed to supply, which is like the bad intention behind behind the AI's behavior. So just, so just for example, using AI in, in war or uh, using AI to produce a lot of propaganda or something like this. Yeah, that's, that's an example. I mean, I think we, we see, so a really concrete example of this that, that we've seen uh, is, you know, someone immediately, there's this sort of project of like creating little kind of more agentic systems using kind of uh, kind of language models as, as the base. And someone immediately created this agent called Chaos GPT, who, which has the goal of destroying the world, right? And, and this is sort of a joke, but I think it's like an, it's a... It's a, perhaps an, an, an informative joke where we, we, we learn something about what humans will do if these systems are made, uh, made widely available. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there is a question of like, would that person have done that, how, depending on how scary the thing is. But I think that the basic lesson is there, which is that you should not, you, like humans will just do, like for any given like kind of bad thing that you you don't want people to do, if you, it, there might be, you know, depending on how widely available this stuff is, like some people will just do it and they'll do it intentionally. And, it, and the model itself will not be like, necessarily needing to come up with these goals. And so, you know, if you're worried about like agents uh, hacking, if you're worried about agents like persuading people to do stuff or stealing money or um, building bioweapons or, uh, you know, whatever it is, there's a, there are aspects of the, the kind of pipeline to the model doing that, that the human can supply, um, even on their own volition without the AI needing to like, you know, kind of commandeer, commandeer them. And so, yeah, I think, I think you're right. It, it 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 is just a pattern we see that that whenever some some new technology is is released, people will kind of test the limits of what can this do and try to break it in all uh, all sorts of ways. This is what we see when 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 GPT or ChatGPT or GPT four uh, came online and people people tried to make it say things that OpenAI does not want it to say uh, in in all sorts of uh, creative way ways. And perhaps this is. This is great. We learn something from it, but it also tells us something about human nature. Perhaps it just tells us about there will always be because there are so many people. There was all there will always be someone who who will will try to push the system to the limit and perhaps further than the limit in terms of danger. And there is a question of like how how much of that is there? Kind of you know I think the the, the kind of the quantities and the amount of damage at stake can matter. And I think we want to be careful insofar as like some of some of these arguments can can end up like. Yeah, I think there there were kind of real questions about about like what amount of access to different forms of technology do you want to allow? But at a, at a broad level, yes, like I think I think there are there's certain sorts of technology that's sufficiently scary that we like you don't just just like kind of throw it out into the world and let let kind of everyone with whatever intention do whatever they want with it, right? And I think that's that's very clear with with like bioweapons and clear with nukes. I think and and so I think we we you know, we should be thinking about AI in, in kind of a similar vein or sufficiently powerful AI. That's, that's how we should be thinking about it. So I think there's actually quite a lot of kind of synergy between concern for misuse and concern for misalignment in, in, in the sense that many of the, the sort of regulatory and kind of safety and auditing measures you might want, um, especially with respect to the capabilities of your systems and kind of how widely they're deployed and stuff like that can are kind of similar. That said, ultimately, I think that the, these things can like trade off and there can be ways in which if you're kind of too focused on what sort of the other humans will do, the bad humans will do with with their AIs, then you can uh, end up kind of compromising on your safety and, and other things. So, so it, it, I think it's a tough situation. I think some people want to say misuse is zero problem. Um, we should never like worry about that because it might trade off against safety. And I think it's like, I think it's a tougher situation, but it, we want to hold the tension um, in the in the right way. And it, I think it does actually matter like what our probabilities are and what the, what's at stake and how bad the different scenarios are. It's like, it's like a complicated discourse. I think at a first pass, there's something nice about, about, about misalignment, which is that it's really this sort of like positive sum problem. Like no one wants, or sorry, positive sum problem, but like no one wants these systems to kind of be destroyed. It's sort of a point or to destroy the human race. We can kind of it's easy. It's an easy point of consensus. It's an easy point of coordination. It's something we can really do a kind of public good to to create kind of safer systems and kind of techniques for making these safer. And I think and I think that's like an, a a kind of one point in favor of that as a as a point of focus. Yeah, I, I understand what you mean there. Although it might not be strictly true, I I'm I'm thinking here of like uh, suicide cults or cults where the where the where the, the main premise is sort of hatred for humanity as a whole. Um, and these are, of course, tiny, tiny uh, percentages of, of, of humanity that, that, are, that are in these cults. But yeah, do, do you ever worry about that? Do you worry about, this would be in the, in the, in the misuse bucket for you, right? 
intentionally, yeah, like a suicide call creates chaos GPT or whatever. Yes, I think I think there's a general a general issue which I think is not unique to AI, which is this sort of discourse around the idea of a vulnerable world and the kind of democratization of I mean, or there's different ways that the world could be vulnerable, but one that receives an especially large amount of focus and is especially kind of uh, fraught politically in terms of like what what is the solution is is what do you do in a world where kind of the kind of capacity to destroy everything is becoming increasingly democratized if it is. So, you know, like, it, you know, it doesn't need to be AI. This, I think this comes with bio. It could comes with, come with all sorts of tech in the future. And I think at a basic level, we don't want it to be the case that um, uh, anyone who decides that they want to destroy the world can do it. Um, and so you, uh, you need some solution to that. What that solution looks like, I think, is actually just a really hard problem. I don't think that's, uh, um, or it could be a hard problem, depending on the technological landscape we end up in. Now, in practice, we haven't had to deal with this so far, but that the worry is that that's partly because of the sort of limitations on what tech we've had available. Um, you know, overall, I think this is you have to talk about offense defense balance and a whole bunch of stuff. But but it, I think it's a hard issue. Um, I don't think it's a sort of just AI issue. Um, and in fact, you might hope that AI could help insofar as um, AI might also help with the sort of defense aspect of that. If you, if you had a aligned AI, um, then they might also kind of, you might use use the sort of your newfound capacities to kind of harden civilization in various ways against sort of like suicide calls or kind of threats of this form. Yeah, and th this is what we've been seeing with, with uh, technology up to this point. Uh, I think at least to some degree that we've been seeing that that uh, defensive technology has, some, uh, has in some sense won out over offensive technology. And we've, that kind of power balance has allowed us to, to, to live in a, in a relatively nice world. We've talked about extinction and we've talked about misalignment. We've talked about misuse. So we've talked about the possibility of, of utopia. You said this is worth uh, thinking about visualizing perhaps, but perhaps it's not the main priority. Then we have sort of, middle scenarios we could call it uh, one i have in mind is is humanity becoming less and less grounded in reality and kind of sort of losing contact with what's really going on uh, this is something that i know dan hendricks worries about this is something that paul cristiano has written a bit about um, where perhaps we are we are more and more unable to understand what's going on in the world because things are becoming so complex because AIs are solving more and more tasks for us, and we are we are we are losing agency. But we we are loving it along the way because we're getting so much. Our living standards are rising along the way. This is not an extinction scenario. This is not a, a misuse of, of of highly capable AI. But is it something we should worry about? Do you think? I'm most worried about this dynamic insofar as it leads eventually to our disempowerment. Um, and, and so whether that's via extinction or, or some other way, and I think actually both final outcomes are kind of compatible with the world seeming kind of similar to, to what you described for a while. So the version of this that I worry about is the AIs, you know, in some sense, we are failing at uh, what's sometimes called scalable oversight, which is our ability to like supervise, supervise behavior that we ourselves can't directly understand. It's such that the supervision enforces conformity to what we would have wanted out of that behavior kind of if we could have understood it uh, adequately from from our perspective. So so the worry is, you know, in some sense, what what you end up with is you're seeing, you know, for all the metrics you can understand are saying, yeah, it's fine. Um, things are going great. But in fact, if you could see the behavior more fully, you'd be like, wait, this is horrible or this is like not what I wanted. I think that's a concern. But the reason I think that's an eventual concern is because one thing that you might not like if you understood it better is behavior that ultimately leads to you being disempowered. Ultimately, that scenario is one that I worry about within the the kind of structure of the kind of power seeking kind of threat that the, the report is oriented towards. If it's not that 
I, I guess I've always, I've personally felt that people seem to me kind of overly excited about some, or kind of overly concerned about various scenarios in which the AIs never actively disempower us, but somehow, I mean, there, there is stuff there, but um, it's never seemed to me it, uh, as, if the AIs aren't kind of actively disempowering us, it seems to me like we have a lot more scope and they're sort of always, in some sense, if we say like, do this, they will do it, or it'll be, we, 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 then I think we have like a lot more scope to notice what's going on and try to course correct and try to coordinate. It's obviously not like, fine, there's a tons of ways, tons of ways things can, things can go wrong. But if you remove the kind of actively adversarial dimension, the kind of AI risk story, then I think it, things, things just look a lot better. Like the scary thing is when the AIs are like optimizing against you. If they're not doing that, then um, yeah, then I'm feeling a lot more comfortable. Yeah, and I and I think uh, Dan Hendricks and, and Paul Cristiano that I, I mentioned before they would they would agree with you here and, and classify this as a as a one point in the way towards uh, an, a potential extinction scenario. Um, but if if it isn't that, is there another risk uh, in the in the middle of the road scenario here in which we again we're talking about losing contact with reality? Perhaps we're talking about our preferences becoming. F- remade by AI to be becoming easier to satisfy. You, I, I think you know what I'm getting at here. I'm getting at kind of an extension of our current paradigm with, with social media. And perhaps the future is not extinction or utopia, but it's just an extreme amount of, of wasted time and distraction and kind of a dumbing down of humanity. Is this worth worrying about? I, I think I would be inclined to bucket that under a much broader umbrella, which is like, ways we could mess up that are neither oh my god like there was a really catastrophic and specific human misuse event or sort of there were actively adversarial like misaligned ais and so it's just like we can there's just all way all sorts of ways in which civilization can just fail to achieve its potential or sort of muddle along i think there are ways i would actually if i'm if i'm doing those i would be much more concerned about like more direct, more directly, like negative moral errors. So I think I'm concerned that we have, uh, that we that we fail to kind of adequately, to basically that we fail to treat our AIs and our digital minds well. Um, conditional on solving alignment. I think there there's like a bunch of ways in which we aren't currently grappling with the um, the sort of ethical questions about how to integrate. Uh, kind of new digital minds into our society in a in a kind of a simultaneously like wise and like kind of genuinely ethical and and kind of compassionate way. Um, I don't think that's just about suffering or consciousness. I think it includes like political questions about rights and property ownership. I think and and like and then tons of um, additionally difficult stuff around like how do you prevent people f- from kind of creating suffering on your computer on your you know if you have a personal computer but you can like create you can create a suffering mind on it. Um, like, how do you prevent that from occurring? Um, how do you deal with democracy uh, in contexts where, like, you can you can create kind of like many many new many copies of a mind and then and then delete them or, or all sorts? Of, I mean, if you can delete them again, how, when you're allowed to delete a mind, when you're allowed to copy it, um, what you know, what what does consent look like when you can when you can kind of engineer minds with specific motivations? Like, what what does um, there's just like we're we are in for it in terms of new ethical questions that it is possible to mess up, even conditional on on getting kind of, in some sense, control and understanding over over uh, over AI. This makes the landscape look pre- pretty bleak for us because the, the alignment problem is, is, a, is a difficult enough problem as is. But if we're then talking about uh, potentially 
mistreating our AIs that we have aligned to our goals, potentially not giving them the rights that they should have and so on, then, then that's, that's additional complexity on top that, I mean, the, the, the question of, of digital sentience is just not mainstream uh, perhaps yet. And, and perhaps it will be, you know, what I talked about before the scenario of, of us pulling out our smartphones in, in 2027 and having a what looks to us like a video call with an actual person, uh, but the, the whole thing is, is an instance of generative AI and how this might change our gut reactions. And could there be a very quick change in the public's perception of, of AI models and, and which uh, rights they should be given and how realistic it is that they are sentient? I think there could, could well be. I think it's like, there's a bunch of different factors here that I think pull in different directions. On the one hand, I think people have a hard time with the idea that something that they're used to understanding at a sort of mechanistic gears level, like where their first, their first encounter with it was sort of at the level of like the neurons in our brain. And they're thinking, if, if you start out thinking of humans as centrally a collection of neurons, there's a way in which our kind of naive philosophical relationship to consciousness stumbles on the, the kind of mechanistic conception of a conscious system. Um, and so if you started with a mechanistic conception, then it's easy to like, well, this is just a bunch of neurons. Like, the, you know, neurons, I don't see any consciousness in there. I can see all the neurons they are a little connected. Where's the consciousness? Where's the blue? This is a great, a great way to put it. I mean, you can imagine a, a, a person who has been along for the full ride of, of, of kind of computers becoming a, an integrated part of human life. You can imagine someone who has been working on this since the 70s and, and seeing kind of starting with, with a punch card and, and switchboards, perhaps, and, and you know how how could how could consciousness ever arise out of out of such uh, basic components? Totally, and I think a, you know a reason to, to to not trust that is that you can make the same argument about neurons. Like if, you know if you started out if you were building humans out of biological neurons, maybe you started out by stringing together some like neurons grown in a dish and and just a few of them, and like oh come on, like that's not. I mean I even have this I I notice when I engage with like little sea creatures or creatures. You know, sometimes they're these like tiny translucent, you can, you can maybe you see, see kind of internal to the system and you look at it and you're like, how could that be conscious? Like I can see all the parts. I don't see any, I don't see any consciousness in there. How could that happen? Uh, but like, that's not, you, you know, that's, and literally there are these thought experiments, you know, in philosophy where you imagine like touring around um, in, inside a brain or you imagine, you know, a giant, uh, you know, network of humans like passing punch cards um, and, and all sorts of stuff. And, and now some views of consciousness do say, no, there's something special about this such that, um, you know, computers can't be conscious or whatever. I'm really skeptical. I think, I think, um, it's just very, very likely that, um, that, uh, uh, kind of digital minds can be conscious in, 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 in the sense that I care about. And, um, but I, so I think, but I think people are going to have trouble with it on that level on the other hand. And so, you know, if, if you compare with, for example, animals, like animals don't struggle in that regard. I think people have, it's easier for people like, well, animals are kind of similar to us. They're made of the same stuff. They have like brain sort of like us. So it's sort of an easier question or you don't have to sort of do that gap. Yeah. Yeah. If they are evolutionarily close to us. So, so if they kind of look like us and if they are perhaps big enough for us to take them seriously, just a, a personal example is that I, I can, I can look at a, a shrimp of a certain size and think that's probably not conscious, but then look at a, a larger shrimp that are not more complex and think that, well, that's obviously conscious. And so I, I just don't really trust my my intuitions on on this topic anymore. Totally. I mean, I think our I think we're we're lost on this. It's a really bad intellectual situation, and something I think we should be kind of approaching with a lot of kind of fear and trembling, because we are, you know, currently 
playing with, like we know the stuff that matters most or, you know, really core to our conception of what matters is this something about minds and like, what's up with minds. And we're currently like take, we're just, we're just like throwing mind stuff around. Like we're just like building random new minds and, and stirring it with a bunch of gradient descent and like putting it in whatever situation we want. We're, we're taking like kind of the stuff you make souls out of and kind of just like kind of mad scientist flailing alchemy. Like we, we have no idea what we're doing, but we're like, we know that the stuff we're toying about toying with is like nearby the stuff that is like most precious and important. And I think that's like a really scary really scary situation from an ethical perspective. Yeah. And I think, and I think we're going to get it. I th so I think in contrast with the, like the sort of difficulty of, of imagining digital consciousness, which doesn't apply to animals. I think the the thing that AI is going to have in the opposite direction is it's going to be um, smart and it's going to talk and it's going to be able to like, you're going to interact with it in a bunch of ways that you're used to interacting with systems that you're according um, kind of moral status to. Um, it's also might be optimized in other ways. Um, uh, and in the limit, I mean, you could even have, and this is something I worry about, you can have AI systems that aren't conscious or that don't warrant uh, kind of moral uh, consideration by our lights, but that nevertheless pretend to um, in order to gain power. Or, and, and, but they also, or don't pretend to, and maybe they really do, but they're trying to gain power and they're trying to kill you. And, and you know, just because something has moral status doesn't mean you should let it kill you. And so, I mean, there's, it's, it's going to be a really, really messy situation. I think I worry about kind of hard trade-offs here. I think, I think it's, it's sort of a whole additional feature of the situation that doesn't get, um, in my opinion, kind of enough attention. But in particular, the thing I worry about, you know, going back to your question about like scenarios where sort of middling scenarios, I worry that we get this part wrong later on. And I think, um, you know, there is, there is just a scary track record of humans not giving due consideration to kind of sufficiently different forms of kind of sufficiently different creatures. Uh, you can just easily imagine us treating AIs kind of um, in, in ways we have mistreated humans in ways we have mistreated animals. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that if we can sort ourselves out as a, as a civilization and kind of understand things better, get kind of get safer from an existential risk perspective, then, then we can sort of appropriately respond to that category of considerations. But I don't think it's guaranteed. And I think it's like a, a scary way that's sort of middling where we just have, we have a sort of in, in a deep sense, like unjust, um, or kind of, uh, kind of bad society for, for, uh, digital minds in in, a, in a, like a longer term way. This question of of digital minds. If, if you say you were talking to a person who just thinks this is just this this cannot be an issue. This is so far out that it, it doesn't make sense to to even to even uh, theorize about digital sentience. What's your what's your way of framing this to make to make it seem uh, perhaps a bit more plausible? Why do you lean towards perhaps uh, computational theories of consciousness, or why do you find it plausible that we could have digital sentience? Probably the argument. So there's a few arguments that people sort of bandy around that I'm I'm kind of reasonably sympathetic to. Maybe the easiest, though, it's it's somewhat complicated if you want to like really get into like the physiology. But but the you know at a, at a high level we can do these sort of gradual replacement scenarios where we imagine uh, kind of all right. The, the the high level question is like could we build a mind that is in some sense computationally like yours or structurally like yours um, out of non biological elements, right? Um, and I think it's very, very plausible that we could like, you know, you have a, we, we can do a, a whole brain emulation in the limit of sort of this like really, really intensive kind of simulation of your brain. And it will reproduce your kind of all of your, your, uh, verbal reports and all of your kind of, even the internal processing will be kind of structurally isomorphic across your brain and, and this emulation. Um, not, not necessarily one for one because of like chaos, but it's like, it'll be the same kind of computational system. At a high level, I think it's just very plausible that that thing is conscious. Even, even if we don't talk about like 
transitions. And one, one way to get that is like, when you think about like, what is ultimately driving when you, when you look inside your mind and you go, I'm conscious, you're, there's some, something that you're sort of reacting to or detecting, or there's something that's driving your, like what is eventually your literal mouth in the physical world moving, um, saying I'm conscious. And that process, it, you know, it's sort of a computational one, or we, we, we understand there's a sort of an algorithmic uh, kind of description of what, why it is that, you know, your, your mouth ends up doing that. And then that, that description will be preserved kind of by a hypothesis with respect to, to the, uh, the emulated system so, such that in some sense, the system will be saying it's conscious because of the same reason you, you're, you're saying you're conscious. If you think that the reason you're saying you're conscious is because you're conscious, then, uh, and, and this system is saying that it's conscious for the same reason you are, you, you should think that something's preserved there. Now, I think that's kind of a complicated and abstract argument. I think it actually gets into a bunch of really difficult stuff in the epistemology of consciousness. The easiest, the easy, somewhat easier argument is to imagine now gradually just making yourself into a system like that. So you sort of replace one neuron with like a quite sophisticated non-biological neuron. Um, and some people are like, oh, but like, it can't just be a simple element. And there's some sort of like work with me here, people like, come on, is this really about, is this really about the, you know, the proteins and people are like, maybe it is about the proteins. I'm like, all right, well now we just have like a kind of complicated neuroscience question, but like, uh, it just doesn't seem like this is going to be where the, the kind of meat is philosophically. But, you know, some people, some people disagree, but I, I sort of think now imagine you change one neuron into a kind of computational element, change another one, change another one. And there's some notion that you're not going to notice. Certainly by hypothesis, you're going to be saying all the same stuff, like the computational structure is preserved. Um, and so uh, it's kind of weird that there's this argument about like, well, is your consciousness kind of fading as, uh, as we add more and more neurons? Um, and there's some thought that like, come on, man, like no way you're going to be like half conscious through. And some people are like, well, I don't know, like pea zombies. Anyway, it gets very weird. If you want, we can just talk about like, well, whatever, like we have expert surveys. It's like, I don't know, they're like 60, 80%. I think the experts are too low on this. I think it's like more likely. Perhaps the thing that's worrying here is just that we won't be able to distinguish between sophisticated mimicry of, of consciousness and actual consciousness in AIs. And so we might be misled into giving AIs rights that shouldn't have rights, or we might from our gut reactions be misled into giving AIs that should have rights, uh, not giving those AIs rights. And so it's just, it, it gets very, very, very difficult all of a sudden. I've discussed this uh, question of digital sentience on this podcast before. One of my big questions here is just, what on earth can we do about this? Uh, for the alignment problem, it seems at least somewhat graspable. There are different appro approaches, uh, interpretability work, uh, for example. W what on earth could we do about digital sentience? In the limit, we can understand. Like we can just, you know, you do a bunch of philosophy, you really understand the neuroscience. I think it's worth, you know, there's some ways that like these, the very question is confused. Um, and, but, but I think at a basic level, we can just like, you know, understand all the relevant facts and then sort of act in light of that understanding eventually. We are going to be very, very far from that, in my opinion, for a kind of importantly substantive period of time, depending on kind of how your um, like how focused you are on the longer term versus kind of nearer term stuff. Um, we are not, I think, in the near term going to know what's going on with our systems. We're not going to know what internal properties they have. We're not going to know what internal properties we care about. I don't think we should assume that we only care about consciousness. I think it's possible that you can mistreat in ethically relevant senses non-conscious systems, which is a sort of controversial view. Um, I, I just think we should be like quite open to just tons of different ways this could shake out in terms of what is ultimately going on with minds, what ultimately is at stake by our lights. Um, and so in the meantime, I mean, I think I don't, I'm most interested right now in what are the like low hanging fruit? What are the kind of things we can do that are going to be 
not requiring of us solving a bunch of philosophy um, or getting a bunch more insight into whether our systems are conscious, but that are kind of reasonably robust, hopefully cheap, um, you know, and then we can talk about the expensive ones later, but start with the cheap ones that will kind of enable us to do kind of do better by REI systems. One suggestion that's been made is a paper, uh, Bostrom and, and Schulman, um, that I, I think is, is kind of a good candidate for kind of low hanging fruit is to uh, save various of the AI systems that we're using and, and in principle could be mistreating um, for possible like compensation later. Like if we realize that these systems were in some sense, you know, we, we were kind of doing wrong by them. Um, or kind of hurting them or something like that. And, but we have, we can later then we can be like, all right, we're going to make sure that your life is like amazing on net, well, you know, whatever your life, whatever, whatever that means is. But in some sense, like find a way to make whole to, to whatever degree you can, um, such, such that these systems would be, you know, be really happy on net with, with kind of their, their lives and their situation relative to not existing at all or something, something like that. Now, I, I think that's like pretty janky. And obviously you can ask questions about like, well, what, what is the actual kind of structure of these systems? What, what are we assuming their concern is for their future, their life or whatever? I'm not sure, but I think uh, this, this seems to be relatively cheap, um, though we can talk about, you know, it does, it does matter like how many things you're saving and which things you're treating as distinct entities. And we're going to be confused about that too. But that's, that's like an example of something that uh, could, could just be implemented now and uh, I think could make a difference. Perhaps the impression listeners will get from this conversation is that, um, or at least from from the from the first part of the conversation, is that we we are updating, or a lot of people are updating towards um, perhaps AGI arriving sooner than they might have might have thought, and perhaps AI risk being higher than they might have thought. There's also a group of people who have been talking about uh, AI risk for for decades now, and who have been saying that this this risk is is very is very serious. Um, you talked about before the the Bayesian constraints about how we can update when we have when we have given some probability of of risk, and you said that it's it's difficult to update to a, from a very very low number, and I, I guess that also holds for updating from a very very high number of probability in in uh, in AI risk scenarios, and then ever becoming convinced that it, this is not a a big problem. How do you think about the, the so-called doomers and how, how their epistemology works? In practice, there are, you know, many, many more people who are out there expressing kind of very dismissive attitudes towards AI risk, you know, kind of, or who will even say kind of, and I want to like actually really just thumbs up people who are willing to go out there and say a number um, as opposed to just sort of being dismissive, but people will say, you know, one in a million or, or there are, Many, many fewer. In fact, I'm only aware of one um, person, and and it's Eliezer Yukowski, who doesn't actually like to give numbers. Though, if you, depending on which, you know, blog posts you look at, some of them sort of have quantitative implications that suggest we're at you know 99.999 something, some some like something such that we're like really, really effectively zero percent on his model. Um, and then it's a question of like, well, how maybe his model's wrong? What probabilities you put on that? So there aren't that many people who are like one in a million that will be fine, um, or one in a million that this doesn't happen. But if there were, then it would all the same dynamics would would apply. And I think they apply in more in milder cases where people who are at 99% that we that we die, you can just say, well, okay, well, that predicts that you you will, um, you know, you're at less than 10% that you'll, uh, you'll ever be at 90%. Um, I think that's right. Uh, and, and uh, so all the same dynamics will apply and people should should kind of um, question like, is there anything that could give me hope? Anything that could drop me down uh, to ninety, um, or you know, even to ninety-eight if I'm at ninety-nine, and then ask like, what is the probability that that I end up seeing that and and making that update? And and um, 
it'll be the same the same constraint how, how do you think about the possibility that all of this talk of ai risks that that you've spent a lot of time on that that i'm spending a lot of time on that it's it's somehow it just it's it it doesn't matter or it it's it's not real it's uh it turned out to 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 not be a real thing this whole time uh how, how do you think of that possibility uh so i think there's a couple of different ways that could happen some of them are just like in the model right where if you have you know, let's say you have some probability on really kind of relevantly powerful and agentic AI systems being developed within blah time period. But, you know, you also have probability that doesn't happen. Then it could be, you know, as you're saying, there's like, a, you know, maybe a chunky probability that, that, you know, you get to the end of your life and you're like, yep, never happened. And in some sense that was, okay, this was all kind of, and then there's a question like, well, what is your retroactive assessment? But it could be that you were just like, yeah, I, I made a reasonable ex-ante call. I looked at the evidence. I think my like, you know, relationship to the evidence available at the time was reasonable, but nevertheless, things played out in this particular way where that one doesn't, I mean, it's tempting to think that if you, you know, if something where you're like only 20% on it ends up happening that you're like, oh, I must've been super duper wrong. Um, and, you know, to some extent you were wrong, but you weren't like that wrong. And you might not have been going that wrong, you know, in your relationship to the evidence at the time. I think those are the more, the most likely ways in which this is all confused. Um, it's just sort of like, an empirical scenario that, and again, this does matter. Like, what sort of doomer you are. So, if you're if you're at, if you're at ninety nine percent and you have this like super super confident model of like exactly how this plays out and exactly how hard things are, then I think it's like a lot easier to have end up ended up like super wrong. Um, and I think uh, sometimes the discourse is sort of dominated by the most confident voices on either side, and so it can really seem like well, there's a sort of strict dichotomy. Whereas I think in fact uh, the sort of more reasonable probability distributions just have decent weight on like a lot of different scenarios that are kind of variously degrees, various degrees of doomy. And so that's like my best guess is that like, you know, there's just different ways this could play out. Alignment could be not that hard. Humans could coordinate in various ways, like takeoff could be slow. There's stuff like that. And then there are kind of more fundamental confusions where like later we look back and we're like, ah, we were just like thinking about this all wrong. That one I think is like the, my, my, Best candidate for that is we were kind of like over-focused on some notion of agency and and kind of somehow thinking about things in terms of their like objectives too much. Like we had sort of reified, reified our kind of intuitive human modeling of like other agents in ways that misled us. Um, as I said before, I don't think that's sufficient to like make it confused to think about a paperclip maximizer, like I think, or confused to think about like just like a kind of agentic system. But I think it can lead you to kind of privilege that framework as a way of predicting what future AI will go. And I think that's that's like a candidate for a confusion that that like the discourse has suffered from or we'll, we will look back on and be like, ah, we were confused about that, those concepts. Yeah, so so one part of the question of thinking about AI risk is thinking about the increase in AI capabilities. And this is this is also something that's part of your your report on on power uh, power seeking AI as a as a potential uh, existential risk. What are the best tools we have for measuring uh, AI progress or AI capabilities? You see, for example, GPT-4 passing high school exams, getting A's in high school exam, passing passing the bar exam. What does this mean, right? It, 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 does this mean that that, that GPT-4 is is now suddenly as as capable as a human lawyer? No, we we all know that there's something to being a lawyer that's not just about passing exams. Yeah, we have all kinds of candidate, candidates we could we could run through, but perhaps let's let's start with talking about benchmarks. How do you, how do you think about benchmarks and comparing AI performance to, to human performance by that metric. Other things equal, I think it's great to have benchmarks because you can really track what's going on and, and it's a kind of quantitative thing and you can optimize for it and stuff like that. You know, I do think there's a general history of 
you know, it being somewhat difficult to specify ahead of time the uh, the tasks that will be blah meaning blah degree meaningful with respect to AI progress. So, so you know, like the, I think a classic example here is people thinking that chess was this sort of like really really important indicator of a kind of deep intelligence. We shouldn't underestimate how how much weight people put on chess as as a kind of like the the upper end of human intellectual achievement in before it was basically a, a solved problem in AI. You know, the thing I do want to say, to the extent I've been kind of encouraging this mode of like, well, look ahead to what evidence you can get and forecast what will you feel then. There is, I think that's virtuous and, and good. And I, you know, um, but you can be kind of wrong about what else you will have learned by the time you get there, right? So it might've been in the past that you you said like, oh, well, if the AIs can play chess, then I will absolutely freak out, right? But you were imagining the wrong, or I guess a way of putting it is like most of your probability mass was on scenarios that were in fact importantly different from the one that you end up in, but not with respect to the chess parameter in particular, which is the one that you were articulating. So you're maybe imagining the AIs are doing all, all sorts of other stuff. Or, but in fact, you show up and you're like, the AI sucks. You can see that you can see the algorithm and the algorithm is sort of this brute force thing or whatever. And you're kind of like, oh, I see. I was wrong to privilege this as a kind of a, an indicator of AI performance in general. Um, and I think, you know, if that happens, then, then that's true. Or, you know, then you should take that seriously. And But I do think there can be, you know, there can be like moving of the goalposts things where it's like, well, you did say you thought that was a big deal. Um, and it is here. Had you told me 10 years ago that AI, AIs could pass high school exams and even bar exams and so on, I would have been incredibly impressed. I would have called it AGI at that point. And so I, I do, but, but now somehow I'm less impressed. So I'm, I can kind of feel myself move, moving the goalpost in real time because then I'm thinking about oh, uh, perhaps uh, high school exams aren't actually capturing what we what we mean by by competence in a certain domain and all of these things. Um, how do you think about the the things that benchmarks cannot capture, specifically in the economic sense of which perhaps what it means to be a lawyer in the real world is to have a network, is to have some some human connections with people, and it's it's not perhaps uh, as much as we might think it is about drafting documents that AI is is uh, that task that that AI is pretty good at now, and and this of course connects to how much uh, economic impact uh, AIs will have in 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 the short term and 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 long term. So one one aspect of what you're saying there that I think it's important and useful is to figure out what is it that you ultimately care about. And I think people um, sometimes privilege some notion of like, well, when will the AI be, you know, real, real AI? Like, when will it have the special sauce? When will it have, you know, that that thing, intelligence, general intelligence? You know, if you're doing that, then it's 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 sort of a, you know, you're you're kind of in for it in terms of like, what did you mean? But B it's not clear why it matters. Like it's, it's not clear why it matters, which th- what we dub intelligence or understanding or the, you know, this sort of verbal debates about like which folk theoretical terms we will apply to our AIs when. Um, I think it's better to say like, what what's at stake in those terms? Why do we want to know whether those terms apply? Um, and I think economic impact is a very good, you know, point of focus there. I do think a difficulty there is there's a bunch of additional stuff at stake in what sort of impact a, a given system has on the actual real world economy beyond its sort of ability to have that impact. So you might have like regulatory barriers, you might have like slowness in adoption, there might be like other sorts of frictions. Um, and so, but yeah, I mean, other things equal, I think like are people literally actually using the systems for like a given task is sort of the most important thing because what we're ultimately wondering about is systems that are doing stuff in the world and able to like actually get meaningful and kind of high impact things done. 
Um, so, you know, I think like the, probably the most important benchmark or indicator of, of kind of scary AI, AI progress from my perspective is um, the usage of AI systems to automate AI R&D. Not just necessarily kind of in principle could they do it, but are to what extent are like existing systems actually being rolled out within AI labs, within like hardware companies and improving productivity, kind of changing the pace of progress, uh, reallocating labor, like what is what is the impact of these systems on on the AI R&D process? Not necessarily in the economy as a whole. That's, I think, for me, the most important thing to be tracking. Because then we might get into some kind of self-improvement loop. Um, perhaps over, I'm not thinking about in, in a very short term loop, but perhaps over, over years uh, as AI becomes more and more capable of increasing uh, R&D in, in, in AI. So why is it that AI is being able to perform AI R&D is, is so important? The scariest scenarios are ones in which uh, there's a kind of feedback loop. There's a, there's a very kind of traditional story uh, that I, I, I expect to track the kind of dynamics less directly, which is this sort of AI is literally kind of editing its own source code um, and kind of in this very kind of recursive self-improvement dynamic that is sort of driven by the AI itself, I think. But there's a pretty nearby dynamic that I think is worrying for kind of similar reasons, wherein the kind of whole process of of kind of improving our AI systems and like all of the, the inputs that drive AI progress become, um, that they start to be kind of, the, the labor involved is more, is, is kind of more and more fully automated. Um, and the kind of outputs are being reinvested. We're, we're getting uh, software progress driven increasingly by kind of AI, uh, by automated AI researchers who uh, who are then kind of improved by that progress. We're getting hardware, more efficient chips uh, that are being kind of designed by, um, by, you know, by AIs themselves. There's a question, eventually you're automating like the actual literal hardware production. Um, now that's, I think, a longer, a longer process. And so um, the, uh, you know, you don't, the, the scariest scenarios, I think, involve like actually a kind of more purely software focused feedback loop. Um, at least initially, and then and then the worry is, you, you know, if you kind of really close the loop and you have a kind of fully automated opening eye, um, or or even you know, depending on, on how things go, but once you get that, then it's like I think you're in a, a, a pretty scary scenario. And there's there's a report by uh, a, my my colleague Tom Davidson at OpenPhil uh, that goes into that in some detail, which I recommend to people. So that I think that I see that as the most the, the factor that drives AI progress the most, and also I think it's it it suffers from fewer of the larger kind of barriers to implementation. They're not not entirely free from them that come from like economy-wide adoption of various forms of automation. I think that's just like a much longer process. There's a bunch more friction and hurdles. Um, and I think it's actually not necessary to end up with kind of pretty scary degrees of AI capability. It's the case, for example, that that AI researchers are pretty close to what it would mean to have AI help with with AI research. So that's that's perhaps one argument for, for expecting uh, AI R&D to be automated before other types of, of uh, endeavors. Is it also the case that there's just a, a huge uh, amount of money to be made because AI researchers are so expensive that automating some part of that job would be very economically valuable. Are we perhaps living in, in, in sort of a weird world in which uh, AI research and development, which I would expect to be something that's automated in at the very end, along with perhaps uh, physics research or something that seems to me like very, very advanced uh, stuff, that that, that, that type of um, 
research is 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 automated before we we see automation in other parts of the economy. We should distinguish between the sort of capacity to automate it being available in the sense of like the AI capabilities themselves being available if you wanted. In practice, do people take the step of implementing and uh, of implementing the automation in question? And I think um, my guess is that the kind of by the time you're actually able to to fully automate AI R and D uh, process, you're also able to automate like most stuff. <laughs> um, just because I think I think the AI R and D process involves kind of most, especially the cognitive labor. You know, I think there's a sort of additional question about what goes on with robots and and how how hard is it to kind of get get your kind of physical labor. But but speaking just to like all the aspects of what what people at OpenAI do that involve just like their laptops and, and clicking around and stuff, you know, uh, I think once you can do that, you can probably do also most of what the physicists do. Um, you know, there's some question, you know, may, maybe maybe you might wonder about, uh, you know, especially specific forms of cognition that, you know, um, certain very specialized humans are doing and will that take a different, but, you know, broadly, I expect like the capacities to come online at around the same time. And I actually wouldn't expect physics to necessarily be like a super difficult thing to automate. The things that seem, you know, harder for me is like, when are you going to get like AI teachers or surgeons or like domains where we're like really quite, uh, kind of heavily regulated industries where we're going to have like really intensive checks and there's going to be like a big political debate and like, you know, are you going to trust the people and all sorts of stuff? That's that's sort of more what I'm talking about. I think there's like barriers to to society rolling out and adopting and trusting these systems. Whereas, well, A, they're just going to be more comfortable with the systems. B, they can literally, like, I think, I think it's the case that like these labs will often deploy their products before they release them to the world. They'll be using them internally and like, you know, uh, you know, employees will have access. And then, yeah, I think, I think at a certain point, if AI is a sufficiently valuable driver of, of kind of growth and profit, then you just want to be reinvesting or like really focusing on that. And so, and it's like, I think, it, you know, unless we regulate right now, it's just not, it's just a lot easier to kind of deploy these things. It's like, you don't, there isn't some big, some big hassle, uh, or not as much of a hassle, um, to just like using the chatbot that you built internal to your company, um, than there is in like making it a doctor. Yeah, we should say this, this is happening to some degree already. We, I would expect at least, uh, to have the top labs, uh, using, um, Copilot, basically, which is an, an open AI, open AI uh, originated product, which is a an, an autocomplete for for coding or programming, and so in that sense, we, we could see perhaps signs that that we will see more automation in in uh, AI uh, research and development. Yeah, I think code is a really really important place to look. Like how how much are kind of coding assistants speeding up the um, the kind of coding process and what aspects of it. But I do think there are other things too. Like I think probably for this to work, you need a you need just like a really holistic assistant of the type that people are trying to to build. Like, but that can kind of assist you with just like all sorts of desktop activities and coordination and communication, and all sorts of stuff. Um, so I do think uh, more than code is required. But at a certain level, like once once the AIs are like coding as well as human coders, like the best human coders at OpenAI, and once the AIs are now and now they're like generating ideas for experiments and designing experiments and they're generating new algorithms. I think once the AIs are like developing um, algorithmic breakthroughs as as kind of uh, important as the transformer, like now we're like really cooking with like very scary gas. Like that's that's a really intense degree of kind of innovation coming out of these systems. If you can then like you know really step on the pedal with that, where you go, it's sort. Of, so I think like that that's scary stuff and 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 thereby important, especially important to track. 
Yeah, I, th I think when I think of programming, I perhaps uh, I, I think of it as a, as a bit of a lower level activity, closer to to the details. For some reason, I find myself thinking that uh, that AI would have trouble uh, automating the role of, of a CEO. So, not uh, inv not inventing uh, a, a an AI breakthrough at the level of a transformer, but but saying that okay, now we have we've seen the transformer paper. Now we're going to invest heavily in this area. We're gonna we're gonna use resources here and not there. We're gonna make these strategic decisions, big picture thinking, uh, long time frames, and so on. For the running of, of, of a company or lab like OpenAI or DeepMind or so on, that would be required uh, or that is required now. And so isn't, wouldn't that be a barrier to, to AI automating uh, AI research and development? I think it would. I mean, in general, I don't think, I, I mean, I think there's some scenarios here that focus specifically on a sort of important phase transition that occurs when you move from like 99% automation to like the full to full automation such that, you know, now open AI, like the humans are just watching open AI kind of surge, <laughs> surge forward or something. It, you know, I think that's, I, I don't think that's necessary to get um, the, the thing that I'm scared about. And in, in fact, like once you have, you know, in Tom's model, once you have systems that can really kind of fully, fully substitute for human cognitive labor, you don't even need to kind of boost their capabilities all that much further to end up in a very scary situation. In particular, he, he you know, he, he has these calculations where if you look at the sort of amount of compute that, that is sort of realistically at stake in, in training a system of that kind, um, then once you've trained that system, you just with the compute that you had of access, you'll be able to run, I think, I think he has some calculation where it's like, if compute is, you know, if it's like GPT six or seven or something, you know, this is like, I think it's like a hundred million human equivalent workers, like in OpenAI, <laughs> you will have a hundred million human equivalent workers or something. It's like, okay, well, I, now I think we can talk a little bit about like, what are the memory requirements? How's that actually work? How's that calculation work? But like the broad idea that you can, you'll suddenly, or maybe not suddenly, because you're going to have built up to this. You have this glut of high quality cognitive labor. It doesn't need to sleep. Um, you know, it can like, it's probably by the time it can, it can kind of do most of the stuff or all, you know, really fully substitute for human cognition. It's also like way better at tons of other stuff. You know, you can rapidly improve, like you can do, you know, you can try to get software innovations out of this. So, so like, I think it's very plausible that you can get into the regime where we have AIs that could really, you know, where if we lost control of them, it would, it would be, uh, you know, disastrous without having any sort of like full handoff by the humans to like a fully automated company. You know, it's just, it's sort of a question of just, are there sufficiently many sufficiently capable systems that if we look around the world or, you know, they, maybe we don't even have a chance to decide whether to deploy them if they really, if they really start kind of, um, you know, taking the reins. But I think in general, the, there can still be human, humans in the loop by the time we die. <laughs> um, if, if uh, though, you know, if humans are out of the loop entirely, then it's an especially, you know, especially easy to imagine that that things things go off go off the rails. So thinking in terms of scenarios like this, uh, make it clear to me that this could happen much uh, much more quickly than than I might expect. Um, and you, you see rhetoric coming out of of again the top labs or top companies thinking about this decade as being uh, especially important. What do you think we can do or should do if it is the case? Let's just assume that we have something called, something like transformative AI by 2030 or 2035. What, what do you think we, we should do in, in that scenario? Should we should we perhaps focus uh, in, a, in a hardcore way on specific projects and drop everything else? So if we knew that we were going to get a kind of transformative AI by 2035 or 2030, at a civilizational level, I think if we really knew that, 
Um, and I also think this given the, you know, to some extent, the amount of probability we should have on that. I think there's like actually just like quite a big burden of proof on tons of other projects. So I'm, I'm like sort of sympathetic to, for example, like how much theoretical physics do we really need to do, you know, in the next, in the next uh, decade, you know, it's like all the, I'm, I'm kind of like all the physics students, you know, if they're physicists who are, who are, you know, uh, you know, professors um, who, who's, who are listening to this, this podcast or whatever, I'm a little like, mm, you know, like, Mm, if you really knew so one thing is like all of your research like the ais are going to do it immediately they're going to get all the answers like all the things you didn't get you know you're going to be out and you'll learn the answers later but like how cool is it to have like made whatever incremental progress you'll make in the next little bit there's a general image um in in nick brostrom's work of like if you're if you're digging a if you're digging a, a hole and there's like a bulldozer that's coming you might not want to focus on like what is your marginal contribution to like uh digging the hole you might want to focus on like what's going to happen with this bulldozer, right? And what sort of hole is it going to dig? And is, is it going to dig you into the hole? I don't know. I'm messing, messing with the analogy. But so I think like there's a bunch of stuff that seems to me sort of in that vein in terms of like human intellectual progress. Like I just think there's a bunch of questions that we don't need to answer to, to deal with this thing. And then once if we deal with this thing correctly, then then a bunch of uh, we'll get this big glut of, of other forms of progress. You know, I think I want to be wary of sort of broader forms of like emergency mode, like drop everything, especially, you know, in, in your personal life or other things. You know, I think that it, we should just be more wary than I think some people are initially about kind of really how much is the costs of kind of like totally upending everything and being like, ah, oh, I shall like burn all my resources and, and like pivot everything and kind of, and, and I think that applies at a societal level. And I think that applies at a personal level too. Exactly. We have some, some, some stories of, of uh, people in, in 2017 thinking that perhaps AGI was coming within the, the next five years and, uh, you know, cashing in their retirement and, and all, all of these sorts of things. And that, that paradigm, uh, Back then, the paradigm was more something like reinforcement learning agents in, in in bigger and bigger environments becoming more and more capable until they could just be deployed in the real world. And I don't know how that paradigm is is, is going, but five years has, has gone by and we don't have uh, transformative AI. So there are some some lessons to be learned from that. I think even on the very short timelines, it it probably doesn't make sense to kind of uproot your life and change everything just because of the uncertainty involved. Now, I specifically asked you to discuss this as just a certainty that we will have a transformative AI by 2035, say. And so, yeah, that's something to keep in mind. I think if you knew that it, the person in 2017 who, who knew that AI was coming in in five years, yeah, why are you saving for retirement? You're literally, or, you know, I, I think that's a totally reasonable response. And I think you should, in some sense, be, if you're 50% on that or whatever, you should, that, you know, that might affect your retirement planning. It might affect how you think about a bunch of stuff. And I think, so I do actually think we shouldn't, you know, there is a real balance where if you actually believe this, it's not just like some, some weird discourse that you like not along at, then sometimes it actually can like affect your literal expectations of like, if you have kids, like what will happen to your kids? Like, what will your life be like? Like what, you know, should you, you know, what should your kids study? Like, what should you, you know, what should you expect to happen with like all sorts of basic institutions? I think we, we need to actually ask those questions. I think, I think society is going to like change. I think stuff is going to be different. And, and if I don't want to just like compartmentalize too hard and say like, oh, sure. Like, you know, change what you talk about on Twitter and like maybe change what your career is, but like don't change anything else that you expect to see in the world. There, there are ways of compartmentalization that I think are um, kind of looking away from stuff. And then there are forms of compartmentalization that I think are healthy. Like, I think it's okay to just like, even if you really think that this is happening, 
I think it's like okay to just like have parts of your life where you just don't think about it at all. And you just like hang out and you, you know, you do things that you enjoy. You hang out with your friends. You, you know, you have a family, you do all sorts of stuff. And I think that that is like more true to a later, even as you get closer than I think people often think. People will sort of think, oh my God, if something's going to happen in five years, I should start like burning my candle at both ends now. And I sort of think marathon, not a sprint, uh, um, applies for like a lot of lengths of, of running. And, and there's a bunch of costs to like burning resources that people don't see and, and, and other things. You can't sprint for, for, for 10 years, perhaps is what you're saying here. Even if, even if timelines are very short, you can't sprint the whole way. You will burn out. That's right. And I also do think in your, in the context of uncertainty, I think we should be just really wary of like ways in which kind of emergency inflected memes can kind of commandeer your resources and tell you to stop thinking, tell you to stop being reasonable, like don't question it, just act on it. I'm like, I'm really skeptical that I think people should be skeptical. I think people should, should take the time, even if the AI safety discourse is like, don't think about me, don't bother to assess the arguments, like just act, just assume I'm right. I'm like people who tell you like, don't, don't bother to assess my argument, but just assume I'm right. I'm like, come on, you know, I'm not saying, I, I don't think we should be in emergency mode to a degree that makes us like kind of intellectually blind or kind of insufficiently skeptical or insufficiently discerning. I think we should be um, still in some sense, amping up even more our degree of like epistemic awareness, clarity, giving ourselves space to kind of be as sane as possible um, in the midst of something that can be, you know, looks like it might be quite kind of intense. Yeah, let, let's stay in this framing of, of transformative AI coming within within the next uh, 10 years, say, or, or 15 years. What do you what do you think uh, in that in that world? What, what safety approaches are you most excited about? So I am most excited about safety approaches that start, so a that apply to the types of systems that we have that we we're building today. So you know, I think I think there's this paradigm, broad paradigm called kind of prosaic AI. I think you should, especially if we're conditioning on short timelines. You should be like, all right, I I am. Uh, trying to trying to figure out how to align the like literal types of systems we're building right now. In that bucket, I think the stuff that I'm most excited about uh, is sort of generally under the heading of kind of scalable supervision or scalable oversight. Where, so you know, as as a first pass, right now the way the way we make these systems, you know, you sort of start out with this like really alien thing that we sort of got a glimpse of with Bing, and then we do this this process called called RLHF, where basically you have humans kind of. Uh, express their approval of the, you know, the model's behavior, or sort of express some opinion about it, and then you train a model to predict what the humans will say, and then you use that to train the the, the sort of base model to to kind of behave behave better. Now that works if humans can evaluate the behavior, right? And now, but it, the more the models start being capable of like understanding stuff humans can't understand and doing stuff, you know, in domains that humans can't track, or kind of just sort of the more autonomous and complex and kind of sophisticated AI cognition and 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 action becomes, the harder it is for a human to just look at it and go like, thumbs up, thumbs down. It's more like, what the heck is that? You know, it's, it outputs this like giant code base and you're like, okay. And it's like, here's my proposal for like nanotech and this nanotech will cure cancer. Just like build it. And you're like, oh my God, like, is this a thumbs down? Is this a thumbs up? You know, <laughs> what's going to happen with this? Uh, we need, we need at a basic level, like as we start to have superhuman systems, the, the sort of current paradigm of supervision is going to, is going to become less and less capable of, of, constraining the behavior of the systems we're trying to supervise in ways that we would kind of like if we really understood. The paradigm we have for aligning systems that are not as smart as us possibly will not extend to system, to aligning systems that are much smarter than us or just smarter than us. Yeah, I think a lot. Of, so a lot of the, the, the hardest problems here come specifically from, you know, what what does your alignment technique do with a system that is way smarter than you? Um, and I think there are kind of somewhat important differences between or sorry, there are really important differences between supervising a system that you're smarter than and, and supervising a system that's smarter than you, um, or kind of understanding a system that uh, that's smarter than you and stuff like that. So 
I, and I think in general, people just really need to be asking of their alignment techniques, is this scalable? The like scalable part is really important. So I'm really interested in that. I think separately, there's a whole bucket of research into kind of threat modeling and, and kind of demos where you, you, you know, we have this set of concerns. I think a lot of these questions are increasingly empirical questions. Like I think some people, like the really hardcore doomers think that this is sort of the dynamics here are sort of derivable a priori that you can just like really, without necessarily having seen how this goes, you can just under, you, you can kind of know from some kind of suitably suitable probability distribution over like the space of possible goals or the space of possible minds that could satisfy various criteria that that these minds will be like deceptive and, and kind of have different sorts of different types of structure and agency and stuff like that. I think a lot of those questions are actually much more empirical. It's definitely a live hypothesis. It's a worryingly live hypothesis that you get a bunch of these kind of bad forms of behavior by default or in various kind of salient contexts. But we, I think, don't yet know how hard it is, how often it crops up, how hard it is to deal with, um, like what the kind of techniques, how, how different techniques will work. I think we need to be just like getting data and doing experiments and kind of starting to really kind of nitty gritty uh, encounter the, the kind of the, the, the actual, these, these issues as they actually play out in, 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 in the kind of empirical world and, and start to understand that. And I think so just like getting demos of like, when do you get problematic forms of power seeking? When do you get forms of deception? Like what sorts of agency do you see in different circumstances? Like how do systems like cooperate? How do they generalize? There's all sorts of just like kind of ways we can look at the specific issues we're worried about with alignment and kind of see how they show up. Um, and then if they show up in scary ways to like tell people like really, and then like, if you see an instance of this scary behavior, really study it, really, you know, very different parameters. How often does that come up? What's, what's, what's up with that behavior? So I think there's a bunch of, those are the things I'm most, I'm most excited about. And then there's some other stuff with interpretability, I think is like also great, but I think it's harder on shorter timescales. Yeah. Is, is there a really kind of dark and ironic world in which we, in order to test whether SIP systems are deceptive or power seeking, try to engineer this feature uh, or this uh, capability into them and thereby uh, destroy ourselves? Is it perhaps dangerous to experiment with trying to get empirical data on these behaviors in AI systems. I'm thinking somewhat analogously to, to perhaps gain a function research uh, in, in viruses. Uh, yes, I think, I think the answer is yes. And, and you know, I, uh, I know people who are grappling with this very dilemma, um, you know, as, as we speak, because it's, you know, you are, there is a, a way in which you're trying to, you're doing gain of function research. You are trying to make these systems scary or you're trying to bring out their scariness, but like bringing out their scariness has, has hazards, both in terms of the consequences for the system's behavior. Like maybe it, you know, if you like try to see like, Ooh, can it build a bioweapon or something like that? And you also can prove out to the world that this is possible or like kind of make more salient these, these, uh, these failure modes in ways that, that kind of, uh, make them more likely, uh, when as instigated by humans. So I think, I think there's a lot of, there, there is a lot of difficult stuff there. Um, but I think we do nevertheless need to be finding ways to kind of to understand these behaviors, elicit them in safe ways um, and kind of learn how they can be addressed and, and kind of what the impact of different different techniques for addressing them actually actually is. Yeah, you, you mentioned interpretability research, which is which is this area where we're trying to take this this black box AI system, this alien mind, as, as you described it, and then seeing which algorithms are running, uh, trying to produce something that we humans can understand about what's actually going on under the hood there. Uh, how optimistic are you are you with this? Because my uh, when I talked to, to Neil Nanda, who's a big proponent and, and practitioner of this approach, we talked about 
whether interpretability can can keep up with the speed of AI progress, and 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 that being perhaps the biggest open question. Um, yeah, I mean, I am quite worried about that dynamic, kind of obviating the relevance of interpretability research to at least like kind of very short timelines scenarios, and and possibly sort of somewhat medium term scenarios as well. I think so. Like, and the reason for that is if you just look at like a. How, you know, where are we at right now in terms of how much have we understood about these these models? Um, and like kind of how hard is it? Like what's the vibe in terms of like what amount of progress is being made, the techniques being used? And you're really like looking and sort of, we're kind of at square one, like, ooh, and you're poking on the neurons and we're learning. It's, I mean, it's a really cool domain. I think I think it's like, it makes a ton of sense to be really excited about this. I think if I was just like a generic scientist, I'd be like, oh my God, it's like neuroscience. Like this is like, the, I think all the neuroscientists should just be freaking out. It's like, because neuroscience is so data bottlenecked, it's so kind of difficult to do experiments. It's like this really, really costly thing. And, and now you have these brains that you can just do arbitrary things to and see arbitrarily inside them. You can build new ones. I mean, it just so like, I think from a scientific perspective, interpretability is awesome. <clears throat> and it's and it's nice in that respect in the sense that it, it's like quite clear from a kind of, you know, getting more people to work on this. It's a relatively direct, like, just understand how these things go you can kind of tell what progress is. It feels very normal science-ish. It doesn't feel very like, oh, I mean, now, of course, it gets a little, there's specific types of interpretability that are more interesting from an alignment perspective. Like, can you understand whether the model is um, lying to you? Can you understand like what what the model knows? Are you able to kind of tell, extract knowledge from the model that you wouldn't have had? Overall, I think it's an exciting scientific area. I think the worry is just, we're at such square one with that. And it's not a bottleneck to deployment at all. So I think, you know, people can just like surge ahead with creating more and more, uh, you know, kind of capable systems with with approximately zero interpretability progress. There's no so so it's it's very easy for it to get just like left behind. That also is sort of a point in favor point in its favor because it's sort of very independent of capabilities progress. Whereas if you make progress on like scalable supervision and RLHF, it also can unlock kind of more deployment possibilities and stuff like that. Yeah, it just looks to me like in the near term, very kind of hard to see kind of realistic extensions of our current interpretability paradigm like being adequate to the sorts of tasks that they might. Be asked, that might be asked of them, where you say like, "Ah, oh, is this model lying to us?" Like all this stuff. Now, that said, like everything in alignment, you're hoping to get a bunch of like help from the AIs and automate. So it could be that we can like automate a bunch of the, the kind of interpretability process. Both, I mean, this this is most you know most feasible, though I think also kind of less exciting at the level of like if you have a sort of relatively rote task that you need tons of humans to perform. Like if there's some if there's some part of your interpretability pipeline that like an MTurk worker is doing then I think we should be reasonably optimistic about being able to scale that up fairly hard because I think we should be reasonably optimistic about getting AIs that can imitate like MTurk workers. Um, once you're doing kind of more complicated stuff or like having to make like real conceptual breakthroughs, you could you could also get a bunch of progress there. And I think, so that that's my most salient like way interpretability kind of comes back into relevance is if we get a bunch of AI help. Um, and, and then I, I do think we just want, we want to have AI help on a, on a ton of different levels. Yeah, the, the, the pessimistic take there would be then we, we have some AI interpreter uh, trying to understand a, another AI system. But how do we know that this AI interpreter system is 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 aligned with our interests? We, we can't really, there's kind of like a, we, we push the problem back one step. We're not sure that we're getting accurate information from from the interpreting system. I think that's true. But I also think it can be over played as a concern. And this is actually, I think, one of the um, sources of hope I have more relative to some of the kind of, like the kind of uh, doomer, the, the more extreme kind of pessimism. I think in particular, I think a lot of that comes from this, this worry that every system that you're working with is of the type 
that you're concerned that it's like deceiving you or like has misaligned goals or is sort of relevantly agentic or something like that. Um, and, and then you're worried that these systems, in addition to all of them being of the dangerous type, they are sort of able to coordinate much better than you are or that, you know, and they're doing like, I mean, in the extreme case, oh, they can do logical handshakes and show each other their source code and stuff like that. I'm like, I don't, I, or, you know, maybe in the limit for extreme stuff, but I'm talking about like in the next couple of years, like, I don't think, you know, th th these models aren't, aren't that capable yet. And, and, and so I think if you have, if you're able to have supervision from like a system that is not an agent or is, is sort of somehow less, uh, less worrying or that you trust, you trust its output for this like specific category of task. Um, then I think you don't necessarily need to be like working with things that might all be trying to kill you at once, depending, or you could have like different probabilities on, on the likelihood that a given system is scary. You can be using less capable systems, um, just, you know, to automate like specific little chunks of supervision or, or, of, uh, interpretability or whatever. So I think I'm generally more optimistic about like, can we use AIs even prior to having like fully solved the alignment problem? Can we use certain sorts of AIs for certain sorts of tasks in ways that like significantly enhance our kind of traction? on like alignment relevant forms of, of cognitive labor than, than like the kind of more extreme extreme end of, of the pessimistic take. That said, it's not, I mean, it's still scary. You're like, oh my God, I'm trying to understand AIs. I'm bringing in the AIs. I'm hoping they're gonna help me. It's definitely not like, oh, we've got this done and dusted. Um, but I think there, there's at least like some some hope for, for help there. And in some sense, you ought to think that for capabilities, you know, to the extent you think these systems will be useful for capabilities and not just because they've like, themselves like schemed that like helping with capabilities will like be conducive to their power, but like they should sabotage alignment research. Like, I think you're, you're sort of presuming that we, you've really like lost the game in terms of like how sophisticated and, and like misaligned are these systems already by the time that's like your story about why they're not able to help. But if they're, if, if that hasn't happened, then you might in fact be able to like get a lot of, of help from them in, in kind of learning about alignment. So we, we talked about uh, physicists, perhaps uh, perhaps if we're in, in a world with very short timelines, they shouldn't spend a, long, a lot of time trying to uh, solve the, the, the most interesting problems in physics. Perhaps they should spend more time on, on AI. So you, you've just uh, completed this, uh, this PhD from, from Oxford and you, you have, a, and, and uh, you have, so I love this stuff. I love the stuff you're writing on your blog. I find it, find it in extremely interesting, but how, how do you think about that, that side of your work or that part of your work in a world in which AI is, is racing ahead? How relevant is philosophy in, in that world? So, I mean, it's definitely a tension that I feel. It was pretty painful the amount of time I spent. I didn't actually spend very much time on the PhD. Um, it's, it's sort of easier to get a PhD if you're not trying to get an academic job and tell, telling the world. Uh, uh, and it is, I think, you know, a source of tension in my life. Like how much should I, how much should I just like totally focus entirely on AI and alignment versus like somewhat a sort of broader set of projects. The sort of compromise I've used is like the blogging and, and the sort of this other writing is actually is sort of, it's like a personal time thing. It's not, I, I try to, I try to have like a work budget that is like much more directly optimizing for like just um, kind of really focusing on sort of what I see is most impactful and bringing this like much more optimizers mindset. And there I tend to focus specifically on AI stuff. Um, though, you know, not, not entirely. Uh, and then in the kind of domain of writing, I, I, I see that more as like, this is my, this is a time that has like a much more, few, many fewer constraints in terms of what I'm expecting of myself in terms of what sort of like optimization I'm bringing to it. And it's more a, a place of like express self-expression and like something that I, that sort of feeds other aspects of my life rather than my, like, what is most important part. That said, I think philosophy matters here. I think, I think like, um, well, in particular, so people, people bring to uh, some of their orientations towards AI, a bunch of extra philosophical assumptions about 
why this matters. So, you know, in particular, I've been interested in long-termism. Um, I think there there is a nice feature of, the, of, of AI right now, which is I think it's sufficiently convergent as a like problem that we don't need to get too into the weeds in terms of like, are you worried about the long-term impacts or the short-term impacts or not? I think sometimes that degree of convergence is overplayed. I, I think in particular, like, if if the AIs don't like literally kill you, but do something else, like then it can it can it can start to matter what that else is and what 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 at st- what's at stake for you know for present day people, future people. Like, um, so there's some there's some questions there. I think there are just broader questions where this is, in my opinion, still a sort of deeply philosophically inflected discourse. Like, I think you know I mentioned this stuff about like the kind of ontology of agency and and all this stuff and and you know this sort of stuff about utility functions and they diverge. And ultimately this is about kind of human values and what's up with human values and what does it mean for, you know, there's like a bunch of, you know, I think this is, this is a discourse kind of born of philosophy. It's an interesting case of philosophy kind of predating a, a real thing that where we encounter um, and, and have to deal with. Or digital sentience, as we also talk about, this is an area that comes directly out of philosophy and, and is could suddenly become extremely relevant to the world. So I think if we start talking about what are we supposed to do with digital? I think that is going to be super duper philosophical. And I think it's like really worryingly breaking of our, like we're going to, we're going to be off distribution. We're going to be trying to generalize to this radically new world, all of these norms and concepts, um, both in ethics and also like, you know, these sort of really amorphous things in philosophy of mind where like, oh, we care about what is it to be, con- you know, consciousness, preferences, autonomy. Like there are a zillion concepts where we're going to be like looking at these like AI systems and we're like, I mean, we're already doing this. People are like, what, what is, is this, does it have preferences? I don't know. What, you know, does it, does a light switch have preferences? What's a preference? Like, you know, and that's, and that stuff is like, going to bite really hard as we move into this new domain off distribution. You have to generalize philosophy is in some sense, the art of like figuring out how to generalize, figuring out what your like kind of naive concepts were and how you should move them to other areas. Um, so I think there's like a ton of philosophy that's going to be done or need to be done if we can kind of survive. I think a decent amount of that, you can kind of defer to the future. Um, and, you know, I talk about that in, in my thesis and, and other stuff, but I don't think you can defer all of it. In general, I think philosophy for me, at least, and, and I hope for many people is sort of a, a, an effort to be a kind of sane and aware and kind of coherent person or soul or human in the world. And, and I think that that project kind of, pers- which is a little less about like knowledge gathering and more about like what is going, it's sort of awareness of yourself and kind of poise and and orientation that you endorse. And I think that project kind of persists in its urgency, even even amidst AI kind of taking off. Fantastic. Joe, thank you for all the time you spent with me. Th- thank you for coming on the podcast. It's, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. It was really fun.